I'm Dr. Future, your host. I invite you to join me as together we experience a future quake. quake, quake, quake. Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I am Dr. Future. And I am Tom Bionic. And it's a new week. It indeed is. But let me let me give you a Monday quiz instead of Friday. What okay. does that mean? It means let we me. have a new guest. You passed that one. I know. Yeah, I'm just going to give you a test on Monday. Maybe it was the rest over the weekend. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, it's great to have you with us here for another week. And Tom Bionic is absolutely right. We have a new guest this week. Mm-hmm. We have Mr. Judd Burton who is a historian, anthropologist, and author of a new book called Interview with the Giant. And we're going to talk this week about Jesus' confrontation with the ancient giants and fallen angels. Hmm. Same old, same old around here. Pretty relaxing. How to live your best life now uh-huh. with a giant. <laughs> so uh, we're not just going to have to like work our way to bring Nephilims into the story. They're front and center this week. Yes. With a new guest we have that has some new findings, Mm. and it just doesn't get any better than that. I am looking forward to this guy. Uh, Having read a couple of chapters of his book, uh, it it was very, very interesting stuff. Uh, The Mm over-encompassing thing being a lot of what was gone on in the Bible had some interesting spiritual applications. That's right. And, ladies and gentlemen, be patient this week over the shows. We sort of crescendo. Uh, those of you who are very conversant in the topic, uh, bear with us. We try to establish a lot of the credentials for this information. Uh, you may find it useful to share with other people. Uh, when people think you're crazy for believing all this stuff, we try to talk about that in detail in this interview, as well as some new information toward the end. So with no further ado, here's Mr. Judd Burton uh, talking about Jesus' confrontation with the ancient giants and fallen angels. We'll be right back to wrap it up here on Future Quake. Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I am Dr. Future. And I am Tom, not a giant, so I don't technically qualify to be interviewed, but still excited about the show, Bionic. Does that also technically qualify as foreshadowing, like you said, for the show? You be the judge. Okay. (laughs) We have a classic guest for us, someone who I think is going to be an instant favorite with our Futurians out there, and someone who I hope is going to come back in the future with this research. But for now, we are going to have our... Uh, first introduction to Mr. Judd Burton, who is a historian, anthropologist, and author of the new book, Interview with the Giant. And we're going to talk about the regular ho-hum title of Jesus' Confrontation with the Ancient Giants and Fallen Angels. Uh, not quite the regular topic you might hear on uh, Back to the Bible no, or this isn't, this Coral isn't Ridge Ministries. This isn't something that was covered by, uh, uh, what was it, Steve Brown? Yeah, many, not, not too many crusades on it. No. But I just want to tell you, Mr. Burton, it's great to have you join us for your first Future Quake visit and what's sure to be a fascinating discussion. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, uh, and I understand that you have... Uh, You've heard a few of our shows, and you still agreed to come anyway to the show, correct? Have indeed. Well, <laughs> in, in spite of it. Well, hopefully maybe you can set us straight uh, with your visit here. You know, since this is your first visit to Future Quake, uh, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background and uh, your credentials and the subject matter that we'll be discussing today? Sure. Uh, I feel a, bit, a little bit like David Copperfield, and I was born and blah, 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 you know how. That goes. Oh, I uh, thought the magician. I thought that's what you were talking about. No, okay. no, the, uh, the, Dickens, the Dickens novel. <laughs> okay, no more obscure references to literature. No, please keep the obscure references coming. 
Uh, well, uh, my credentials are um, I have a bachelor's degree in history. I have a master's degree in anthropology with a minor in history, and I'm presently completing a, a Ph.D., uh, in history at Texas Tech University. Mm-hmm. Um, my my primary uh, focus is the history of religions with a specialization in uh, the uh, the early Christian period, late antiquity, uh, also do, do some things with Greco-Roman religion. Mm-hmm. I have uh, archaeological training. I've had the good fortune of, of, of digging, as it were, on both sides of the world. Uh, I've, uh, of course, done work um, in Israel at this site we'll be talking about today, uh, Banyas, uh, and I've also got some projects that I've worked on uh, here in Texas. Mm-hmm. Um, I uh, My anthropological training was primarily cultural. Uh, it dealt with um, the anthropology of religion and, and ethnology. Uh, so I have, a, I, have, I have a number of tools to work with uh, in, in my research. Um, uh, I've, I grew up uh, in a Christian family, sort of with the Bible in one hand and National Geographic in the other. So uh-huh. cool. There, there was there was always you know this this sense of uh, uh, the sense of adventure mm-hmm. you know in our house and and mom and dad really encouraged that and and I I grew up with a, a real sense of the drama of the Bible and uh, not just mom and dad but but uh, you know my my grandparents and my great aunt and uncle especially were were influences on me and mm-hmm. it just so happened that um uh the uh the brother-in-law of our pastor when I was growing up at the church was a, a professor that I would later study uh Greek under he was also an archaeologist and he he would come and speak and of course um I would I would listen with you know all attention to every, everything that he was saying, and and so I, I sort of fell in love with history that way, uh, and uh, it, it's been a it's been a real it's been a real journey and a real adventure ever since then. Hmm. Uh, the material the material that we're that we'll cover today uh, is, is really an outgrowth of of not only my academic interest but certainly of of my upbringing too. Wow. Well, um, why did you choose the subject of the Nephilim and the Antediluvian giants as a subject for your research? And and what are your goals to accomplish in this study? Well, I, I've always been, like I said, I, I, I've been a, I'm a lifelong student of the Bible, and uh, I've always been interested in the Nephilim, but it seems like it's been episodic throughout different periods in my life um, when uh, when I was a younger uh, fellow um, a teenager you know sort of coming of age uh, it began you know really to occur to me that something was not right not only with the world in which we live now but also in the past um, that there was this coercive malevolent force at work in the world and uh, certainly one of the shapes that that took uh, was the Nephilim and their progenitors, the the, uh, the Gregory, the Watchers. You, you know, I grew up in evangelical churches in the South growing up, 
and we mm-hmm. never talked about that topic. I mean, there was a, you know, of course, uh, David and Goliath. You know, they'd mentioned casuals right. a giant. Maybe even once or twice about somebody else. I can remember in a Christian school they had a, a quiz about. Uh, you know, who was the person whose bed was, you know, so many feet long, and somebody remembered it was Og, and oh, nobody else right. knew he was talking about. Uh, but that was it. it what well, what was it in your upbringing that introduced you to this topic and much to capture your imagination on it? Well, that's, you know, that's usually the extent of, or at least the introduction to, to the topic of, of biblical giants is David and Goliath. Right. And, um, I mean, it was mine, too. Uh, just really just by being encouraged to read the Bible, it was sort of a a, a personal discovery. I, it was, it's not that it was never um, talked about in church. It's just that it was never talked about at length. You know, sort of mm-hmm. a, in a footnote, sort of a manner. Right. Uh, and um, just just through my curiosity uh, about the Bible as a text, which which contained historical materials and had a had a historicity to it. Um, you know, I began to, to look for other examples, and then you know, the next step, really, in a lot of people's search or research in this topic, uh, is Genesis. You know, the Genesis mm-hmm. Genesis account, particularly chapter six, yeah. and this just throws a monkey wrench in convention. Right. Uh, you know, uh, I find it's a real bone of contention when I talk. To some of my other evangelical friends, they just really get incensed that you would even presuppose that there could have been any kind of union between human women and angels, and it is a real dividing line. But I was just sure. wondering, were there any were there any other authors or anybody else that did any books that you read that and it really introduced you to this thought in greater depth? It was, was just solely your look at the Bible well, yourself. I remember, and I, I couldn't tell you who gave the talk it was when i was younger when i was a kid but i remember somebody making the sort of analogous connection between the 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 giants in the nephilim in genesis 6 because it says they were they were men of renown the mighty men made this this fellow made this connection between these giants as explanations for the mythological heroes in in other traditions Mm-hmm. And that that was one thing that really piqued my curiosity, because I'd always been interested in religion and mythology as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, really, from there, I, in sort of a grassroots kind of a way, I guess, uh, reading the Bible and and looking at these other mythological traditions seemed to sort of line up this this thesis that this guy was putting out seemed to sort of make sense to me and that was sort of the the bedrock of the foundation you know that i really proceeded from mm. wow interesting well uh, i i found it very interesting as we've come across other people who've approached this topic like dr michael heiser and a, a lot of the people who speak sure, at the exactly. roswell yeah. conferences that, right. that they've all come from very unique ways and it's just almost like a best kept secret until they somehow encounter this, and it starts the wheels turning about other theological issues. And I just say shame on the church for not approaching it front and center, because I find they just almost just sweep it under the rug out of of ignorance Uh, or whatever reason and don't want to approach it because of the other questions that it may raise. And what makes me wonder, are there other theological issues like this that we do the same thing to? 
is this indicative of other things that we're really not open our mind to the full counsel of God? Uh, so I think there's a lesson to learn here that even goes beyond just giants. Uh, oh, I, I, I would I would agree, and I, I would I would also say that I, I think Heiser's work uh, that I, and I have a great deal of respect for Dr. Heiser as we all do. Uh, I think I think his work in many ways is definitive, particularly with the the linguistic work that he does. I mean, he's just a um, an amazing scholar when it comes to these Semitic languages, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and uh, I, I think his his work, uh, particularly with the Nephilim, uh, is pretty clear. Mm-hmm. Um, so, in 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 matters of, of certainly of Semitic language and the sort of nuts and bolts of of, of what that is and what what sort of theological implications uh, the Nephilim have, really for our belief system, I, I defer mm-hmm. you know to, to Heiser. Well, and he he's like a lot of people in our circles that, that frequent our show. Everybody works together, exchanges notes. Uh, it's not that parochial, and uh, it, it's it's neat because when you're not part of the the, the real mainstream, uh, you, you don't really build these forts, and, and people are trying to help each other when you're outside right. of that. Hey, exactly. what about, speaking of scholarly work, what did your professors think about you bringing up this topic as a topic for your your research did it, did it raise a lot of eyebrows? Well, here's here's the thing. Um, this this book that I've done, interview with the giant, uh, is more sort of an outgrowth of of my dissertation work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we'll we'll, we'll get mm-hmm. into to Bonius and Mount Hermon here mm-hmm. in a, a minute. Right. But, you know, sometimes you have to kind of yeah you, you have to kind of go down a rabbit trail uh, to work out some of these problems that you encounter along the way and what I would do what I typically do is is I I do these little sketches these little essays and that's really mm-hmm. how I, I compiled the work for this book mm-hmm. um, to try and work out some of these problems really to my to my own satisfaction first and then then uh, as a, a sort of secondary consideration to put them together to see if they might be of help to somebody else mm-hmm. and so with with Bonyus, being at the foot of Mount Hermon and being so close, you know, being in the region where the watchers fell, where the Nephilim sprang from, mm-hmm. um, I be- I began to to wonder if there was some connection in the mm-hmm. uh, the topic uh, of of this book doesn't center totally around that, but there are issues that mm-hmm. I bring up mm-hmm. in the book that are related to that. But did your faculty did it capture their imagination too? About this connection to the watchers and things, or is it still taboo? Well, taboo in those they, circles. It's it, yeah, it's still it's it's still I guess what you might consider fringe, or what most people might consider fringe. Uh-huh. And and in my my dissertation work, it's it's more uh, this this sort of this sort of work that I'm doing here is more a sort of footnote of my dissertation work. Mm-hmm. Um, the dissertation that I'm doing is a, a religious history and a sacred geography of the site of Bonyus. I, mm-hmm. I originally became interested in it because it had this um, continuity of shrine usage over thousands of years mm-hmm. during the course of its history. Right. And so, yeah, yeah, in in, in conventional academia, those those sorts of ideas are are still you know pretty much taboo. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I. I I'm an I'm a scholar. I'm an academic, but I'm also a Christian. I'm also a believer. So there's really a, a blending, a marriage of 
I suppose those two halves of, mm-hmm. of my person when I approach this work. I can't really, you know, use one to the exclusion of another. But yeah, for the most for the most part, I mean, it's it's tab, you know, it's yeah. taboo, it's fringe. Well, I'm just thankful that you, being a Christian, that you also desire to be a scholar and do quality scholarly work. And I hope the Christian community appreciates that and uh, values that, values quality in our research and, and, and things like that. Because some of the stuff that gets accepted is, well, in, in problem is, is that by not raising our thinking and critical thinking, that's where we get into some real problems in the Christian world, I think. And so I, I sure. certainly support people who, are, who raise high standards uh, for what they're doing. Uh, what are your plans uh, for your new endeavor that I've heard about called the Institute of Biblical Anthropology? Uh, well, this okay. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, and 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 just share a little bit also about you have another uh, website called Burton Beyond, which is mm-hmm. very intriguing. But can you just explain those for us a little bit and what they're all about? Sure. The Institute of Biblical Anthropology is a project that has has just sort of gotten off the ground. Um, a buddy of mine who was in uh, had just actually just finished his master's degree in history. Uh, buddy of mine, uh, Blake Collier, and I just sat down and started, you know, talking about well, you know, the uh, it, it's important to understand, you know, the the world that produced. The scriptures. It's important to understand that this is something that, that Dr. Heiser talks talks about at some length. That uh, you you have to sort of put yourself in into the mindset and the culture of the that produce these the scriptures that we read in the Bible uh, in order to better understand them. And that that's sort of the goal of. Uh, the Institute of Biblical Anthropology. That's why we call that because it, it's it's got a cultural uh, sort of orientation to it and our, our long-term goal is to is to start a, a research library hmm. which will be available uh, both to the the public and and to academics who want to use it um, because we, we really in this part of Texas we really don't have a, a, a library that's geared toward this sort of thing and uh, that's that's sort of our long-term goal. Of course, we all have have research agendas too uh, <laughs> that we're holding. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, uh, but that in, in general, that's just that's sort of the the goal of the Institute of Biblical Anthropology. And if uh, people want to visit that, I, c- I can give the website address here in a minute. Okay, wait, lay it on a, lay on us right now. Sure, it's a uh, it's a uh, dot usavtx.org slash IBA mm-hmm. and uh, people can click on that and uh, we have some articles already up um, the other site is is a is my personal what I call my personal website and um, I, th- I throw some uh, articles out there sometimes um, again sort of in the manner of these little uh, sketches these little rabbit Rabbits that I chase, <laughs> and uh, they they usually end up uh, on the Burton Beyond site. Hmm. And that that website is really easy to remember. It's just uh, burtonbeyond.com, hmm. and people can go there and check that out too. That's such a cool name. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have to give you credit for that. What about? I mean, could people have rip off of that like Bionic Beyond? Would that be? Uh... <laughs> hey, 
Uh, any any variation, I suppose, I suppose is legal. Okay, but that is that is pretty pretty uh, hip kind of website, well, Burton, Burton Beyond. And uh, I would suggest if it's like your book and the materials I've read so far, it'd be worth people's time to go check that out over there as well. And uh, now, if we find any kind of ancient, sacred, religious relics here in Nashville, Tennessee, that would be information would be fodder for your institute, correct? Oh, sure. You bet. Because we have William Henry here that hosts the, uh, uh, was it the Dreamland show, you know, for Coast to Coast, who mm -hmm. swears that this that Nashville is the most sacred city with sacred geometry, even more than the Giza Plateau. Well, I'm sorry about that. <laughs> well, well, you know, we have the largest, uh, we have the largest uh, idol uh in the world uh actually uh -huh. pagan idol anywhere in the in the western world yeah and we've uh -huh. got um i just found out recently that uh what was it the bat creek findings where they found uh some semitic writing or something supposedly semitic mm -hmm. writing uh out east of town here i don't know sure. anything about that yeah cyrus gordon was all over that huh okay well i will just say that i i, I won't i will not discount you know pre-columbian old world exploration yeah. of the new world but yeah uh I, I don't worry. I probably would. <laughs> you know, you know, I, I went into a cave here locally, and when I came out on the other side, I came out of the Grotto of Pan. It was the strangest thing. Yeah, there's all sorts of weird Grotto stuff going of on. Pan. I won't tell you what I saw in between the two, but it was yeah. really a, just a weird connection between yeah. the two. But uh, I know we'll talk about that in just a minute. But we'll keep that in mind Indeed. as we find some some interesting. <laughs> and that goes for the rest of our Futurians too. Uh, Pass them along. I assume any kind of reports or data uh, around the world of something that has uh, sacred or uh, some kind of religious connotation that has a ge geography connection that that might be fodder for your institute. Oh sure, yeah. Okay. If the, you know, if people are you know doing their own research and found something. You know, we're a forum too. You know, we want we want to hear from people. Okay. Well, now let's get on to our main topic for the day. Okay. Uh, what is the basic premise of your new book, Interview with the Giant? Okay. Uh, well, I, I sort of sort of explained how how it it it, uh, it gelled. Uh, the The book itself uh, is a, an ethno history. Um, when a when a civilization or or, or a society. Uh, is on the brink of of disappearing, uh, especially in in recent centuries. What anthropologists have done, you know, of course, is to salvage what what relics, what information would be left from that society in order to preserve a record of it. You have examples of this being done in the late 19th century, early. 20th century by the Bureau of Ethnology out of the Smithsonian, which you guys are no doubt familiar with. Uh, but uh, what they would do, of course, is send out these groups of, of anthropologists to record data on these disappearing Native American tribes. Mm -hmm. And the, over the last century, this, this method has been refined, and, and anthropologists and historians generally refer to it as, as ethnohistory, you know, basically using every piece of cultural data that you can get your hands on, whether that be documents, oral tradition, folklore, uh, mythology, maps, uh, music, you name it, just anything that you can find that would help you put together a, a 
a record, a, a sort of cultural record of the people that had had been uh, had had been lost. Uh, and so I, I thought that this would be an interesting framework in which to put the Nephilim. If we treated their um, well, their existence, we would treated it as a culture or society. And certainly, mm-hmm. if we're using the Bible as one of those tools to to reconstruct it, um, we've got materials to uh, reconstruct that history. And, and this is really just kind of a different way of doing what some people have done already in putting the history together and back together uh, of the Nephilim. Dr. Heiser has used uh, Semitic languages uh, in order to do this. Um, I think Tom Horn has done some work uh, along these lines. Um, at any rate, what I sought to do with this book is is to is to use ethnohistory to piece together a, a culture of the Nephilim, if you will. And second of all, I wrote it in in sort of a conversational tone as well. Uh, so people could, can use this as sort of an, a primer or an introduction to the subject of the Nephilim because it, it is, like you said, it is one of those subjects that unfortunately gets sort of brushed under the rug, uh, and we don't always give it its due credit. We're back at Future Quake with Dr. Future. And Tom, not a giant, but certainly interested in the topic bionic. Well, you're a giant in my book. I know. Well, if I keep eating at Wendy's, I'm going to be a giant. And I would like to throw you down into an abyss. Yeah, I was going to say. Put lots of rubble piled on yeah, top of you. I was going to say, like a Zazel kind of a thing? Or? <laughs> no, I yeah. wouldn't call you a Zazel. <laughs> Too much respect Maybe for like Zazel for that. Mephistopheles, yeah. but not a Zazel. Well, there you go. Well, um, we just got right there toward the end about uh, the basic premise mm-hmm. of his book, and there's a whole lot more to be unfolded over the next three days mm-hmm. uh, after this. Uh, but I found it interesting how somebody like himself finds an interest in this topic mm-hmm. and how sad it is that you really can't hear much about this stuff in church. You'll get a Sunday school lesson of David and Goliath, and that's it. Oh, there's a giant. Well, so what? You know? Well, I, you know, I, I, I would say that, I would say that, you know, the whole, certainly the whole word of God can be preached or should be preached, uh, whether it's to the, to the young kids or mm-hmm. the older crowd and whatever. But I, I'm of the opinion that pretty much every, Every church and every minister out there tends to sort of go with just what's safe uh, mm-hmm. and leaves out a lot of things that are happening today in our society uh, that relate very heavily to what's in the Bible mm-hmm. uh, because they just don't want to cause a ruckus. Right, cause any kind of problems at church. They think yeah. they have enough already. And Yeah, it's like, yeah. well, you know, the fact that... Uh, Might interrupt uh, giving and funds, you know. Yeah, well, don't get me started. Okay, I won't get you started. Uh, someone else who we should get started is Merv, though. Merv, would you come in and tell our listeners how to contact us at Future Quake? Future Quake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the shows, topics, or guests, or suggestions for future show, topics, or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. Okay, that's we, the end of the line. We always go over. I don't understand I'm how sorry. we do this. Ladies and gentlemen, come back tomorrow. We'll have another great segment with Mr. Burton. Until then, we hope your future is always bright. Have a good day. Bye. 
Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. quake, quake, quake. Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I am Dr. Future. And I am Tom, not Chatty Bionic. We have to hurry. We have very little time today. We have uh, our second Let's installment go. with go. Judd Burton, historian, anthropologist, and author of The Interview with the Giant, talking about Jesus' confrontation with the ancient giants and fallen angels. Here's Judd Burton. You may call it a primer, and I guess from an academic standpoint it is, but people will know more about the whole idea of the ancient giants than... 99.999% of the population, even even Bible students, uh, regarding these giants, just from reading your book, because it is a very vast um, document that covers all the basic areas of it, as well as a number of very provocative uh, hypotheses that are that are put forward in your work. Why should this controversial topic of the Nephilim and the ancient giants and, and the fallen angels be important to us today? Is it just something that it's a dead issue that's long gone, or do you think it has any kind of relevance to our life now or in the future? Well, it's a dead issue that's long gone to a lot of people, um, but uh, I, I, I don't see why. Um, I'm going to give you the Sunday school answer first. The Bible says so, so that that's that should be reason enough to take it seriously. Okay. Um, Good the, answer. Uh, the, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> the... the uh, the Old Testament references um, a lot of you know researchers are familiar with, uh, but the, the New Testament references to uh, the Nephilim uh, give this topic uh, well more certainly more importance and, and certainly our attention should be directed towards them. You know Jesus talked about uh, his coming uh, the last time he entered into Jerusalem, uh, the time that he would return. He said that. In the days of the coming of the Son of Man, it'll be like when when Noah was alive. Uh, you know, Peter and Jude um, cite uh, portions of the Book of Enoch, uh, which talk about the Nephilim. Mm-hmm. There's evidence, there's physical evidence of uh, the Nephilim. Uh, we read uh, about a number of records um some from from official archaeological reports that the Bureau of Ethnology put out of these large hominid skeletons, you know, right. anywhere from from eight to you know twenty twenty five feet tall, and no okay. real natural explanation on why. People no real natural. Ref- the debate for a while was that they were mammoths or mass- mastodons. But some you know some scholars are still out at the lunch on <laughs> on that. The the uh, the the uh, the morphology uh, of uh, of the skeletal room just that they're hominid and that in itself uh, is provocative as you say and uh, is not disseminated uh, in the public to any mm-hmm. great degree mm-hmm. but uh, the, the, the evidence you know uh, when we talk about evidence mythology is evidence as well mm-hmm. uh, and so it, this topic is very important because the Bible says it so Jesus says these sorts of d- these days will, will will come back when he returns. So, yeah, this is an extremely important topic, uh, particularly for the church. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I would submit, as far as its relevance to us today, that when I became aware of who, who these creatures are, who they're taught to be, and how God had to deal with them, in many ways it completely changed my view of God and his nature. 
at many places mm-hmm. in the Bible because there are many places where it looks like, if you have a very simplistic understanding of God, God is a very vindictive God that's just in yeah. the destruction of people business. And unless you know more about what's going on, it looks that way, and it's very hard to answer naysayers about God. It's like, oh, he's just a vengeful, hateful God I see in the Bible. But when you find out things that there has been a corruption of the bloodline that's pervasive sure. both before the flood, and that for the whole uh, proto-evangelion, however you pronounce it, about <laughs> the kinsman redeemer, you know, the seed of the woman redeeming the rest of mankind, uh, and you find out that there is an active role to try to corrupt that bloodline, you understand why God was benevolent to the human race in trying to wipe out those who were trying to destroy the potential of having a future savior. And even after the flood, when they go to take the promised land, and God knows that the, that the men of Israel have a propensity to mess around with foreign women, and sure. that they have this compromised bloodline, and we're, the whole world is counting on the Jews to preserve their bloodline of humanity for the kinsman redeemer, and how God instructs them that they have to get rid of all of these ones that they are going to tend to intermarry with for for all of humanity's sake. Well, that completely changes the what we see God is doing. So I would submit Completely, that understanding yeah. these things is important to understand the nature of God, also to understand the big picture of salvation, uh, the importance of um, the, the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. And I would say your findings in this book we're going to discuss about even change our view possibly about what was Jesus doing during the days of the Gospels and really the, the big picture of what's going on. And it helps you stand back and have a more cosmic view of what Jesus was doing and ongoing. So, you know, I, I would submit to people who are naysayers or, or saying this is just flaky stuff, it's not relevant to me, that it will completely change your view of God as well as in the future, uh, if there is a future role for these people as well. Uh, can you explain the credentials of authenticity of some of the references that you talk about in your book? The most prominent one is the book of Enoch. Sure. Okay, and a lot of mainstream evangelical Christians, and we have a lot of them listen to our show because mm-hmm. of our broadcast on a mainstream evangelical radio station that reaches, you know, places like Lifeway Bookstore Management and the Southern Baptist Convention Leadership and the universities that they aren't used to talking about this kind of topic. They're, they're wondering how, how reliable are these research. It's one thing to quote out of the Bible. Much of your work is quoted mm-hmm. out of the Bible. But then mm-hmm. there's even references in the Bible to the book of Enoch. In some of these other references, exactly. what, how, how reliable and authentic are these books? What kind of credentials do they have on their side? And why, why should it be taken seriously? Well, uh, in the case of Enoch, um, you know, the book of Enoch was probably written in stages um, and represents, in my view and in, and in the views of other scholars, um, an older oral tradition. You know, the Hebrews didn't have a written language until about the 11th century B.C., at the earliest. And um, so it represents these traditions, you know, these stories that are being passed down within the within the God's chosen people, you know, the, whatever you want to call them, the sort of proto-Hebrew culture. Um, and secondly, the, the provenience in which the, the, uh, the Book of Enoch is found, of course, um, in the caves near Qumran, I think is also significant um, in this collection of uh, apocalyptic literature that's d- discovered, you know, over a period beginning in 1947. Another significant date. Um, 
but I think that um, that members of the church, brothers and sisters, don't don't be afraid of the book of Enoch um, because it, it it it's it should be important to us because it's cited so many times in uh, the New Testament, particularly mm-hmm. in the epistles. Um, and so I, I I think I think number one, it's mentioned uh, in the New Testament is significant. Mm-hmm. Uh, right there should should establish to us that it's it's a book to at least pay attention to. Yeah, it was mentioned in the, in the book of Jude. It was yes, mentioned yes. possibly in First and Second Peter. That's right. Possibly. Uh, you know what I find a little ironic is that, you know, we have your your most of your rank and file evangelicals believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, but mm-hmm. they'll look funny at something like the Book of Enoch. However, those authors who wrote books that they consider inspired were mm-hmm. inspired to put portions of the Book of Enoch in there. So if we can, well, if we consider that inspired writing, inspired by God, and that includes by reference these books and content from them. That means to me that we better be very careful on how we regard those books. If, sure. if, well, if God know, considers it part of his inspired word to include part of their revelation. Yeah. Well, you know, a lot of the uh, the early church fathers, um, you know, early thinkers like um, uh, Justin Martyr and Irenaeus and uh, Athenagoras and Origen, um, Tertullian, uh, a lot of these guys uh, and their and their peers, they certainly had their peers. A lot of these guys, you know, believe if if they did not believe in the canonicity of Enoch, they certainly believed in its near canonicity because they they too and and people, you know, when they get the book, uh, will find that there are you know there are numerous references to this apocalyptic Jewish apocalyptic literature, particularly Enoch, um, in their works as well. And it's really not until the council. When the canon is say, say that again. The council, which the council of Nicaea, council of Nicaea, right. you know, in AD eighty three twenty five. It's really right. not until then uh, that we begin to see uh, books like uh, Enoch and, and other uh, Jewish apocalyptic literature just sort of kind of cast to the wayside. Why do you think it was? Uh, they, why, why do you think they cast it aside? Well, um, how familiar are you with the? Uh, the, the council itself. Just just modestly. I know they had other issues with Arianism and some sure. other you know heresy issues that were involved and things like this that were sure. the that were the big part of it. But I do know that they were trying under Constantine trying to get the whole church to come to consensus. Right. And that's, try to get standardization. Really, that's really what it boils down to, you know, basically Constantine Constantine has the, the bishops together and he says, Okay boys uh, we've got uh that's a loose translation by the way. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, boys, we've got, you know, uh some money here. Um, you guys get together and pick the uh the the books that will define orthodoxy and uh, we'll print X number I've got money to print X number of copies and that's that's essentially the process that produces the canon. And uh, you don't see these books like Enoch represented uh, in that, unfortunately. Okay. Uh, so there's some wiggle room, of course, with the the apocryphal, okay. you know, the Catholic right. canon. You have, you have you have that, but um, but now you know, these these okay these books become less important after that council. You do 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 you know any of the narrative of why they chose to omit it? Are you aware of any of that? Um, that it's a little bit later. Uh, 
from most of the work that I deal with. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm familiar with the, the general narrative, okay. but uh, as far as the, the nuts and bolts details of, you know, what exactly they were arguing over, right. I, I'm... Well, I don't want to get hung up on it, and I just mentioned sure. you yeah, mentioned yeah. Constantine. Uh, Constantine was the same guy who worked with the, that council to call Arianism heretical, and then later right. I believe he became an Arian after yeah. he had denounced yeah. it, so we'd keep these things in perspective. Uh, yeah. and, and, and even about the canon, my understanding is Martin Luther, later on he wanted to get rid of the book of Revelation and the book of Jude and, and even uh, mm-hmm. James and Hebrews. So mm-hmm. it gets a little murky uh, with with some of these things, but but the well, bottom sure. but yeah. the bottom line, if I understand it, and you correct me if I'm wrong, is that the Book of Enoch was venerated by the Jews, uh, you know, for 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 quite some time, uh, and the early church fathers, like you said, uh, most of the major early church fathers quoted from it, sure. as well as in our Bible, as well as in mm-hmm. our accepted authorized scriptures. And so it was highly venerated until sometime about this time, and then uh, copies disappeared. However, mm-hmm. the Ethiopian Orthodox Church, right. which is a major part of the church, uh, kept intact copies. And right. they also kept it as part of their canon. And so then when in the Dead Sea Scrolls finds these, the Book of Enoch there, ancient copies of it, it reestablished, furthermore, the credibility of these books. Now, what you're talking sure. about, about the watchers and things like that, there is evidence, information from the from what we accept as our scriptures already there. Uh, books like the Book of Enoch just amplify the information that seems to be consistent with other ancient records as well. But uh, before people summarily dismiss this, and I would say the same issue is true about the whole idea of the angels cohabitating with women. You know, it's mm-hmm. a common teaching in some some mainstream evangelical ministries and teachers that it could not that could not happen. That it had to be mm-hmm. just bad people mating with good people. Why they would mm-hmm. create giants because of that, I don't know. I know a number of marriages where a bad person married a good person. I've yet to see a giant as an output. <laughs> but but the the ancient Jews didn't have any dispute about it. They knew clearly that these were fallen angels that cohabitated with women and created these offsprings. There wasn't any debate about it, per my understanding of it. Uh, And the early church fathers also understood that very, very clearly. So it seems Mm -hmm. like to me it's a little bit more modern phenomena to try to dismiss the supernatural side of this and to say, well, it's just a metaphor for something else that occurs. Am am I on the right path with that? Well, yeah, you know, in in between there, you know, we've got, uh, you know, the age of, you go back a few centuries, we've got the age of enlightenment, you know, which, pretty much redefined how Western society went about uh, its scholarship, you know, whether it was the humanities or the sciences. And that had a big impact on, on biblical scholarship, too, mm-hmm. um, and, and a, a belief, you know, in the supernatural. Um, and so, you know, this side of history, we've sort of suffered, uh, I think, because of that. I'm not, mm-hmm. not disparaging all of the Age of Enlightenment, certainly, you know, Certainly, there were some benevolent outcomes, but but there were also some some detrimental outcomes from the mm-hmm. age of reason, and we're sort of living with the consequences of that too. Right. Um, well, you know, it's like Dr. Heiser said on another topic on our show recently, is that we have become selectively supernatural 
And I think that's right. part of what's involved. There, right. we, we don't have a problem with the resurrection of Jesus or the miracles that he did. But we talk right. about these other supernatural things, people immediately get uncomfortable getting that's their arms right. around it. And it's it's really an all-or-nothing deal. Either you believe the Bible talks about supernatural things or it does not. And uh, I, I think people need to get accustomed. I just want to get this established before we go further because we may have new listeners that really this blows their mind. And I want mm-hmm. them to know this is based upon good, sound Bible teaching and good, sound scholarly work. And, you know, I, I believe possibly that the reason that the book of Enoch in the ancient copies was refound again in the Dead Sea Scrolls was assigned to us that we better start listening to the message. God, God may have obscured it a little bit for his purposes because a mm-hmm. lot of the teaching in there would not have been understood by man mm-hmm. before today. And now today when we see the signs that are happening in, in the world around us, it may help us to fully grasp with the genetic revolution, and some people even say with the UFO phenomenon, that there's mm-hmm. various reasons why we may need to know the information in those books, and God in his providence has decided to re, you know, to reveal this or bring it up to the forefront again you know, sure. in, in the last days. Um, well, there's a, there's a definite prophetic framework in which the, the book of Enoch and these other apocalyptic, pieces of the literature were found you know as i said 1947 1948 that you know israel becomes a, a nation again right um and you know like I say we we've we we have the faculty this side of of history to understand uh more of, of what's in the book of enoch mm-hmm. yeah you have a lot of weird things happening in a tight window of time you have mm-hmm. alistair crowley passing away you have something called the Babylon working in the occult world mm-hmm. in January of 1946. Yes, you have yes. you have the Roswell, which you know may have opened some kind of occult portal. Uh, we have the uh, uh, Roswell event that happens. We have just a host of things again. Israel becoming a nation over and over again in this little tight window of time, and mm-hmm. uh, it, it really makes me wonder if if uh, the days of old were sort of re jump started again. In the middle of the 20th century, mm-hmm. one uh, one does have to wonder. Well, you know, to 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 uh, look at references in the Bible, can you clarify a little bit as far as the uh, the, the rationale we have from Scripture? Uh, we, mm-hmm. we we sort of mentioned the Scripture supports this topic, and, and, and mm-hmm. most of our audience are generally familiar with things. But can you very briefly summarize the parts of Scripture that clarifies that there was some kind of falling of some number of angels? that got with women and created these offspring called the Nephilim. What, what, what kind of proof well, do we have of that? Well, certainly um, uh, the, uh, the Old Testament references, of course, first, the first one you point people to is Genesis 6. It's pretty clear that something, uh, something unnatural is going on there and is nonetheless happening, and you have this byproduct of these, these giants, the Nephilim. Um, the uh, the accounts of the uh, well numbers when we have the account of uh, the spies going into um, the promised land to scout it out what do they find Mike well they, they find, find giants giants and in fact they it's find... not it's not just some kind of euphemism word for giants they say they look like grasshoppers next to them. So it's exactly. not like it's not it's not just saying well they're mighty men or they're powerful. Sure. They they physically looked small compared to them and the stuff that they brought out was so big and heavy that it'd be the kind of stuff you'd think giants would normally have. 
Well, and their names too give us uh, give us clues to their lineage. Uh, the, the the Anakim, uh, sons of, the sons of Anak, um, and so it, it, that was sort of an entry point. One of the entry points for this sort of ethno-historical analysis was to to look at this cultural legacy that they're leaving behind, and it's strewn all throughout the Old Testament. Um, the uh, if you'd like, I can uh, I can point readers to some of these early Christian uh, these early Christian thinkers who are are, mm-hmm. are equally as interesting. They um, I, I think are probably a little more pertinent to uh, to to this early Christian period that I, that I've mm-hmm. been looking at uh, during my own research. You mean some of the church fathers that talked about this? Yes, yes, right. yes. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, uh, you know, beginning with the New Testament, Matthew 24, we talked about that, how Jesus is talking about the days of Noah. Mm-hmm. Um, Peter uh, has a couple of, of interesting things to say. The one that I, w- I would point people to to begin with would be Second Peter 2.4, uh, which certainly echoes uh, the punishment given to the watchers that we find in the book of Enoch. Of course, Enoch tells us that what, what happens to the watchers. Mm-hmm. Well, they're, you know, uh, we hear stuff about them being thrown into darkness and bound and, and suspended in midair, you know, hanging head head first. Uh, Peter says, For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them into gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment, that... That imagery right there is right out of Enoch. Mm-hmm. Um, Jude that we talked about right. a moment ago, uh, Jude probably the more significant uh, of these two epistles with regard to uh, the book of Enoch. Um, Jude 6, where he talks about, he says, And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their own home. And these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for the judgment day. Verse 13 I think is is equally clear using phraseology like for whom the blackest darkness has been reserved forever referring uh, to these watcher angels. And as I said, uh, go ahead. Go no, ahead. no, proceed. Uh, as I said, uh, you know the the early church fathers continue um, continue this legacy of of belief. Um, the interesting thing about the time when the early church fathers are writing is that you know Christianity is new, and almost right out of the bat, of pagan polemicists who begin to attack Christianity uh, as this sort of you know wayward urban cult you know gone awry, and in the, almost immediately uh, leaders of the church have to marshal their resources to begin to um, defend the faith, as it were, in writing. And in many of these pieces of literature, we have examples uh, of that. We have examples of of uh, their belief in the Watchers and the Nephilim. Um, we even have some uh, some other writers, such as Flavius Josephus, who talk right. about about these giants. That almost, you know, Flavius Josephus writing in the writing in the first century A.D. Um, mentions giants, 
Uh, I mentioned uh, Athenagoras a moment ago. Um, there, there's really a whole collection of writing that people can go to. Um, Irenaeus um, wrote a, a work called Against Heresies. Very famous Athenagoras. work. One of the most famous yes, of the church fathers. Yes. Yeah. And and uh, you know in, in uh, book four, uh, people can go there and look, and the, the imagery is just so blatant. Athenagoras writes the plea for Christians. Um, Tertullian uh, uh-huh. wrote an apology in which he mentions this sort of thing. And, uh, these apologies, of course, are it's not like uh-huh. saying you know I'm sorry, right. but it's it's from the, the Greek word for you know uh-huh. explanation or le- right. legal defense. Legal right. defense, defense, really. Right, really. So, so it goes um, on. It goes on and on with these. On it, and on. It almost sounds to me like if someone is made aware of this information, they almost have to willingly turn away from the overwhelming evidence, not to acknowledge that this is a fact. I would, I would argue that not only not only for the believer, but also for anyone else, you know, who who studies this. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, and to harken back to, well, what is it for? What does it have to do with me? Let's just think about some of the passages in the Old Testament that talks about uh, that people are not supposed to have relations with animals, for example. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a reason for that. The, the, these creatures were reported to actually do unnatural things with animals and possibly exactly. create hybrids, to yeah, create things primary, that, were, yeah. that, that were forbidden because the Lord wanted things created after their own kind. Um, mm-hmm. There were other kind of relations and activities that were forbidden. Drinking of blood, for example. We'll talk about that exactly. later. That's another thing that people scratch their head and say, well, why is that such a big deal in Scripture? Well, it is a big deal when you understand what the giants did and what the God is trying to protect us from having happen again. And then you have obscure passages in the New Testament, like women dressing modestly in church because, right. of, because of the angels. I can't tell you, I don't recollect hearing a pastor talk about why does that have any difference with the angels. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there is a reason, because angels have a proclivity toward human women. At least some mm-hmm. have a propensity to fall. So sure. to me it's important, not just out of a gee whiz factor, but it's an important thing to understand some of these other passages of the Bible to what the principles God is teaching and how he's trying to protect us uh, from, from all of this. Having said all that, I, I just sort of want to leave it at that as far as establishing the credentials why. And there's a lot more people can read about or we can reference to them if they still have questions about it. We're back at Future Quake with Dr. Future. Tom, not a chatty Kathy Bionic. Okay, in five seconds or less, why is it good that we pointed Mentioned out that the Mentioned in the, the Bible, Second Peter and Jew and in other places. Uh, so we should take it seriously, although it's not strictly can- canonicity. Kind of owner cool. All right. Well, okay. Yeah, that's all. That's Merv, would you version. come in here? Speaking of Nestle, Merv, would you come in and tell our listeners how to contact us at Future Quake? Future Quake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the show's topics or guests or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast.
Okay, we got to go now. Let's, yeah, we're over. Okay. Ho- hope your future's bright. Until then, we hope you have a wonderful day. Goodbye. Bye. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. quake, quake, quake. Welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Future Quake Show. I am Dr. Future. And I am Tom, talking a little bit slower today, Bionic. I don't understand with the 20 seconds that we had yesterday why you couldn't summarize your points clearly. I did. We are with Judd Burton, the historian, anthropologist, and author of Interview with the Giant. Mm -hmm. He's going to talk with us today about Jesus' confrontation with the ancient giants and fallen angels. Mm -hmm. And uh, we spent yesterday really explaining the credibility of the data. Mm-hmm. That we have, so people can understand that. We're going to really get into the meat and potatoes today about um, the history mm-hmm. of the fallen angels coming down. Meat and potatoes. And anyway, the trouble they get into, yes. their judgment, and uh, we're talking specific names and numbers here. Mm-hmm. And so I think everybody's going to enjoy it. And why don't we just go? You want to just go to it? it? Well, yeah. No further ado, here is Mr. Judd Burton. And talking about Jesus' confrontation with these giants, and then we'll be back to wrap it up here on Future Quake. Can you give us an overview, and then we're going to go through the details, but an overview okay. of the important events. And, and people, you know, if you want to cite your references, you can, but uh, it comes from the Bible, the Book of Enoch, and related passages. An overview of the important events that occurred at, at a critical period of history in the, the area around Mount Hermon and its vicinity, even including this, is it? Benias, is that how you say it? Bonius. Uh-huh. Bonius. So, Bonius. Yeah, Peneus in, in ancient times. Peneus. So, so named after, okay, in that whole region, can you tell us a little chain of events, what happened, and why this area is so important? Well, uh, we, of course, have to go back to the, the Genesis and the Enoch accounts, and that puts us in, in a primeval uh, sort of chronology that, we're, that that we really don't have dates for, is mm-hmm. what that comes down to. Um, but it does least, say least, uh, in the days of Jared, correct? Yes, yes. I mean, we we have we have these markers of, of, about these antediluvian patriarchs like Jared and um, Enoch. So within a generation uh, of their well, generation yeah, well, time. Yeah, sure. Yes, but and and but we're we're talking about a a time far removed from from where we are now. Mm-hmm. It, it, during this this time, this an, in the antediluvian world before the flood. We have um, a group of angels who, as you say, have this proclivity for women and actually give in to it. They they descend to the earth, and Enoch tells us that this happens at the summit of Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon is the traditional northern boundary of Eretz Israel, the land of Israel. And uh, as said, Enoch, Enoch says that they come to Mount Hermon. Uh, they make a pact to... Um, cohabit with women. They're all going to do this. Enoch says that there are 200 of them. Um, what essentially ends up happening is that there is an exchange, and in exchange for for basically civilization, because we read mm-hmm. about metallurgy being taught, we read about um, yeah, sort of uh, you know root medicine, herbal medicine being mm-hmm. taught, we read about uh, the making of, of weapons uh, and, and makeup and other things like this. We basically see this exchange of knowledge for genetic access, and this is where the cohabitation of these fallen angels, these 
watchers. So these women are given over, it appear, it appear, to these beings for their relations and sexual activity in exchange for the information that these other people can use. Wow. Well, yeah, and it's well, it's not implied whether they're whether they're exchanged as chattel or if it's you know if it's a willing sort right. of act. Right. The bottom line is that it ha- is that we have the record that it happened. I'm going to trade and... my wife for an Oldsmobile. Well, you know what though, <laughs> this is not that uncommon in human nature. I no, mean, no, I, no, it, no, it's no, it's not. Yeah, people have the sacrificed. West, it's very common. People yeah. have sacrificed their their. You know, family and other kind of things for that. And, you know, this was at a time when very little was known about Judeo-Christian morality. We're talking about before the flood. Mm -hmm. And aside from small numbers of people, people basically did what was right in their own eyes. Right. And, you know, we even have that, you know, implied in in the biblical text that people did what was right in their own eyes. And the other thing you got to remember is this was a time of the curse when people were struggling just to stay alive. They were struggling, had very rudimentary tools really struggling to survive over the curse that happened. And so you've got this powerful being who has come, and they've assumingly not heard from a supernatural person since God, you know, kicked him out of the garden for generations, long periods of time. And a super mm-hmm. powerful being comes and offers them things to make their life presumably much better. Mm-hmm. Uh, and all they ask is for just a few of their women. And they probably have such a low regard for each other because there, there, there was other violence. We know about Lamech and others that, that did this kind of thing that they probably didn't think right. twice about it. Right. And, and as far as the, the, the technology goes, you know, there's, there are these, all sorts of these agro-pastoral sorts of connotations to what's going on as well, which might, might tempt you to put it, you know, uh, in the, the Neolithic period if you were, you know, thinking along lines of conventional wisdom when agriculture starts to sprout up and then of course you have the growth of cities but that you know that that's really kind of scholarly speculation there's not a whole mm-hmm. you know the bottom line as i said is that there's no exact chronology mm-hmm. uh really for that but we do have this account of what happens and the byproduct of course of this this cohabitation sexual union uh the byproduct is the, this race of giants the nephilim now, now, if I understand right, some of the references get explicit in saying there were 200 angels that came down, and they even right. gave the names of some of these these uh, angelic beings, correct? Sure, sure. And they knew yeah, that they were yeah. doing something wrong. They knew they were doing something against God, their creator, when they did it. Yes, and so so dire were their actions and the knowledge that, it, you know, that, that what they were doing was rebellion is that they, their leader who's often referred to as Simyatza, uh, made them, you know, basically take this oath. You know, we're going to do this, you know, regardless regardless of consequences. Okay. And those fact, same references say, say that Mount Hermon was the place where they made contact from the heavens to earth. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. So then they came down from that mountain and began this process that you just described. Right. Right. That That's where... Everything as it you know so to speak go starts to go downhill. Okay, that was a really bad pun, probably an inappropriate pun, but it it came out <laughs> accidentally. So so what ha- so what happened? Uh, they they begin breeding. What's the byproduct of that? And what happens to life on Earth after this? Well, the byproduct is the Nephilim, the, these these giants, but formed from the union of, of these fallen angels and women. Uh, both Enoch and Genesis, probably Enoch in, in a little more detail, uh, but both of these texts talk about just how bad the conditions were at the time. 
Um, the uh, it, it's pretty clear from Enoch that the the Nephilim uh, were using up the resources uh, in the world at that time. Um, it's pretty clear because they run out of they basically run out of a lot of the resources they need, including a, a steady supply of food. And what does it tell us? What does Enoch tell us? Well, from what well, I know, they, yeah, they started uh, they started eating men. They started well, going yeah, after people. Exactly. Uh, and you know, you've got this cannibalistic, you know, almost vampiric nature that starts to come come to the fore uh, amongst the Nephilim. And so we're not just talking about the wickedness that the that the Watchers taught mankind, but we're talking about uh, a bloody oppression of humanity. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, hearkening back to what Jesus said about the days when he would return, that's another reason I think people need to pay attention to this, mm-hmm. is because, you know, we have an idea of just how bad that, how bad it can and will mm-hmm. get from Enoch. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, when when the Bible just says, very briefly says, that, that, that sin had waxed exceedingly, there was extreme wickedness on the earth, right. and God repented of having made man, you know, wanted to, uh, wipe, wipe things out. We don't have any idea until you read these references to find out how depraved things had come. Exactly. There was almost like nothing, nothing of goodness happening on right. the earth except depravity and violence. Yeah, it would seem, you know, that no, nothing was taboo. Yeah. And so, so really, <clears throat> the, the the whole the, between the Nephilim and mankind and things, they would have destroyed themselves anyway in short order, had God not initiated the flood. Wouldn't you guess? The I, destruction that, would have been that's self-inflicted. Really my, yeah, that's really my opinion, because like I said, if you look at it from just a, a logistical point of view, they were exhausting resources, mm-hmm. and may it been, would just have been a matter of time before they exhausted the last one they had. Yeah, it may have been one Nephilim left, and it was all done. One one big fat Nephilim. Right, you know, right. And the rest of them did. You know, and and there are, there are some who say that the actual interpretation... Uh, of the of the Hebrew about Noah, that that he was actually pure in his generations, mm-hmm. and they they lead that to believe that it may be that he and his offspring were the last ones of the genetic purity required for the kinsman redeemer. What do you think about that? Is that a possibility? Uh, yeah, I've I've heard that. Um, I I do think that that's plausible. Mm-hmm. Um, so therefore, the Lord certainly. waited till the last minute uh, before he brought judgment, waiting for repentance. And yes, when, and that, that's, that's that's the first example I think that we have that that you know it, it's sort of it's sort of um, cliche to say that God is perfect, but you know he he's perfect in everything. That, that just shows that God is perfect in His patience too. He mm-hmm. waited till the the ultimate last minute mm-hmm. right. before he before he took action. Yeah, I think you're right. Well, now now this this narrative you just told us is also reflected. In most other ancient world cultures, right? I mean, mm-hmm. they they have preserved this same kind of chain of events as well. Some degree, and we could do an entire other show right. on that, I think. Right. Uh, but yeah, yeah, you 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 know, there are certain elements in uh, in world mythology that line up with this. You know, virtually every culture has a flood epic that, that is reminiscent of the story of Noah, um, and in in many of them, there are giants that are involved. Okay. Uh, there's the, there's this downfall, you know, from uh, in the case of other mythologies, it's disappointing, you know, their gods, uh, and and this deluge is unleashed. Okay. Um, so that physically but, uh, wiped out the Nephilim. 
What about the angels? There's separate narrative about the judgment and binding of these fallen angels, correct? Can you explain a little bit about yes. what that was and where it happened? Any kind of insights you have on that? Well, um, we can we can discern from um, Enoch and and the the, the New Testament references to uh, what happens in Enoch that um, uh, God exacts judgment on these angels, and we, for all intents and purposes, it's this dark prison that they're put into. Um, in the case of uh, Azazel, uh, we find this fellow bound um, and thrown into a place called Dedal, this this realm, um, which is basically a, a cave or an opening in the, in the desert. And so there, this this image of a, a dark prison, uh, or maybe even as it shows up in the New Testament, maybe even an, an abyss. This this image of a dark prison seems to be where these renegade angels were relegated to. Okay. And and your uh, hypothesis is that it may be this particular location on location on the side of Mount Hermon. Maybe well, the spot where that um, occurred. I'm still working that out for myself. What I find interesting, Doctor Future, is that um, the fact that Azazel, and we'll get into him in a minute, the fact that he is bound hand and foot and tossed into this place um, is very interesting to me, particularly with regard to the fact that there's the the connection with. Uh, the Azazel goat and the atonement ritual, mm-hmm. uh, but also because um, Pan, the uh, Ar- you know the Arcadian goat god, was mm-hmm. worshipped at this site uh, at the foot of Mount Hermon, Bonius. It mm-hmm. derives its name from Pan. It was called mm-hmm. Panaeus in Greek. Okay. Well, we will we will talk about that in just a a couple of minutes here. But this whole idea of the binding of these angels. Is is strongly supported by Scripture, Book of Jude yes. and Peter and things like that, is that they were bound right. and that they're bound somewhere, uh, uh, awaiting judgment uh, at this particular time. You know, you know what? Right. We also see Nephilim that reported. In fact, it says in Genesis six there were Nephilim in the land in those days and after, uh, mm-hmm. presumably after the flood, and we know for sure right. because the the twelve spies saw the Nephilim. We see other breeds of these giants running around through Canaan and this area. How do you think they survived or somehow reappeared? What was their means, you think, that they reappeared in the land after the flood? Well, there's uh, in the book, uh, I did an ethnology of, of these tribes and clans of, of giants using the biblical text as sort of ethnographic data. And um, it's evident, like you say, from from the Old Testament, that there were there were survivors, a survivor or or more of them made after the flood. Those seem to be possibilities. Now there there is a legend uh, among Jewish lore about Og surviving. This is the same Og, presumably king of Bashan, who is who is uh, defeated at the Battle of Edri and and dies. There's legend that he clung to, made a deal with Noah, said, oh, you know, I'm, I'm sorry for, you know, what's been going on. I'll, I'll be good. You know, I'll, 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 I'll do what's right in the sight of the Lord if you'll spare, you know, spare my life. So there's this legend um, about Og clinging to the ark. 
and surviving that way. Yeah. Uh, it, it, I think it's it's valuable as, as cultural data because it's part of their their oral tradition, but it also it also poses uh, it also poses a, a possibility uh, for the giants to survive after the flood. Mm-hmm. Whether that's the case or not, we can't say with any accuracy, mm-hmm. really. Well, um, I, I'd like to throw out another hypothesis, and it's just that. Sure. Uh, if you read carefully in the in the, in the narrative of the flood, it says everything that creeped on the land died. It doesn't mm-hmm. say anything about the stuff in the sea. It says everything on the land died. Uh, in mm-hmm. these records that we alluded to earlier in our uh, discussion, uh, mm-hmm. talked about hybrid creatures, creatures that might yeah. have animal, human kind of things. And some right. of these that we see in the ancient records that became the, the mighty men of old or the gods of old were even fish, human-type creatures, uh-huh. like I think uh-huh. it's pronounced Oannes in the Greek or, or Dagon. And, uh-huh. and, and this Oannes creature is supposedly one after the flood who crawled up out of the Persian Gulf up, uh-huh. into, up into Mesopotamia and then began to teach man this great wisdom and architecture and things. And that's why they believe the Babylonian culture took off. Uh, oh, with, sure. with these know, creatures uh, coming. So, you know, there's other scenarios like that that could be plausible as sure. well. Absolutely. You have all these, you know, um, anthropomorphic uh, animal gods, you know, in, in all of these world traditions. You don't really have to look any further than the Near East, um, in the, you know, the Nile Valley in Egypt, and uh, as you say, in, in Mesopotamia, um, in, in really, really all over the world. Uh so yeah, I, th- I think that, that that is definitely a possibility. Mm-hmm. Uh, another possibility, of course, is that there were there were simply more cohabitations between angels and women. Um, right. Uh, we just, we, as I said, we just can't say with a great degree of certainty. What we know is that there were Nephilim because the text right. tells us so, and that's right. That there's evidence to prove that that's the case. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and also. Uh, some of these texts, as, as you're writing, uh, that I've read points out that, that there was an, a belief amongst the ancients that the spirits of these Nephilim after the flood, the ones that did perish, may be an explanation of who we know as demons uh, right. in the scripture. Right. Who their spirits actually roam the earth, which is why they seek a human body, is because they had one before, and they mm-hmm. desire to rehabilitate uh, a body. And so that may be a reason for these demons. Again, something else that wow. most of your churches don't give That's a good explanation of where they came from. Right. They're sort of the sad sacks of the spirit world. You know, you got principalities and powers and all these ones in the air, and then you got these sure. poor demons just running around, you know, pitiful. So, so you might say that they're sort of, they don't really work together. They're separate factions, maybe? I think that's possible. Huh. Sure. And and the one reason too that I find interesting is that you know when Jesus uh, talked to the demon uh, of the uh, the man uh, you know amongst the tombstones, mm-hmm. and and his demon said, "Please don't send us to the abyss early. We've heard right. you're coming, which is understood to be their their destiny. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so so there may be maybe a reason uh, for that. Um, I, I want to make sure. Um, well, let me just cover something real quickly before we get in our last phase of our interview. In just a few minutes, can you give us a quick rundown of the different tribes of the the sure. giant hybrids? Uh, yeah. You know, their lineage according to the writings. They're not just a one size fits all. There were different no, breeds no. of them. So, just in a couple of minutes, tell us who some of those were. Um, well, as I said, I, I did a. I did an ethnology in this book uh, of the giant tribes, and it would seem that 
that what happened is uh, we we can discern that that their numbers were reduced after the flood, and what we seem to have is is uh, giants reasserting themselves after the flood, developing these kingdoms, perhaps uh, in some cases being founders of civilization. The, the biblical text uh, also paints them as being, you know, the builders, these fort- fortress builders. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, like the city of, city of Hebron was was a city yes, thought to be built by giants. Exactly. Yeah. Kiriath Ar- Ar- Arba was the the uh, the giant progenitor of Hebron. Yeah, that was one of those cities, and um, uh, Edri and um, uh, Ashtoreth Karnaim, uh, these cities that were in Bashan, uh, you know, biblical text talks about these, the 60 cities of Bashan, I think is is, is the phraseology that's mm-hmm. used. Um, but uh, from that we can discern that they were society builders, that they were administrators, and most likely, in keeping with their nature, they were oppressive ones. Um, and uh, it also seems that they, uh, some of them were were mercenaries, you know, such as in the case of uh, Goliath. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Whatever the case, we do we do find a strong concentration of them, as I said, in the ancient Levant and the, the this region of the ancient Near East. Mm-hmm. And, and one could um, maybe surmise their part of their intentions were to keep the children of Israel from inheriting their promised land. I would think that's the most likely scenario. Or, yes. or providing people with a tainted bloodline, again, to intermarry into the vulnerable uh, right. Jew, Hebrew men to taint that to bloodline for line of Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Exactly. They have, have have those positions. But but you've got some mysterious ones like the Rephaim. And I yes. know the, the Zamzumim were ones that I've, I've read in some other sources were, were, were thought strange in the ancient world because they their 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 language had like a buzzing sound and I thought they sounded yes, like bees yes. when they talked. Yes, and you know it, it's um, the believer in me. You know is you know is is naturally a little timid about about the horrific nature of this, but the anthropologist in me you know would like to take a time machine and examine some of these languages right but yeah we do have some very specific you know tribal societal lines that are drawn from the original nephilim stock and the Rephaim are one of these who presumably are descendants of of uh, a Rafa and we find them um certainly in the in the region of Bashan and and in the Transjordan um, you know, we read about Og's bed. Uh, probably remember in the biblical text that uh, this was a, a large, uh, pro- probably a sarcophagus, um, but uh, it was it was about uh, what was it, 13 feet long. Um, this this region of the Transjordan is filled with dolmens and megaliths. Uh, in fact, I, I saw some material uh, from the early 20th century in my book. That deals with uh, you know these archaeologists going out and cataloging a lot of this stuff, and so um, the Rephaim seem to be li- linked with this megalithic uh, culture of the Transjordan, and, and so they they have you know they've left material evidence to us. Mm-hmm. Um, well, you know, I want to. Uh, I'm sorry. No, um, I, I was just going to continue um, right. with with some of these other tribes. You mentioned the Zamzumim. 
uh, and they seem to be, uh, they're also called the, the, the zooming. Um, they seem to be an offshoot of uh, mm-hmm. the Rephaim, at least, you know, tribally speaking. Right, right. Uh, and and we have some others, you know, um, Anak uh, was the founder, you know, the progenitor of the, the Anakim. Um, and we find them in, in Palestine proper, um, particularly in the case of, uh, well, we have mention of them, you know, near Hebron. Uh, so in the, the hill country and in Judea, we find uh, the Anak. If if the Ananage uh, mentioned in in uh, Babylonian texts um, are any any sort of phonetic connection with that, then we also see them in uh, the Mesopotamian Valley, the mm-hmm. Tigris and Euphrates River valleys. Hmm. Anywhere where it seems to be a, a prosperous area where they can exploit the land, that's a place where they take over. Yes, kick, exactly. Kick people out of the best land, in other words. Well, kick people out of the best land or make them work that land for them. Right. Mm. Seems to be a likely scenario. We're back at Future Quake with Dr. Future. And Tom, very interested in all this stuff, Bionic. But you said last week you weren't interested in prophecy, though, right? Well, I, I guess I... Uh, Which I'm still shocked over. I've, I've been My mouth's been agape since then. Well, it's not necessarily prophecy that I'm not interested in. It's just uh, I find that people tend to to make it a divisive issue, and I don't like to get... Yeah, and we would never cover divisive issues on future questions. We'll cover cutting-edge issues, but not necessarily divisive. Oh. So there, oh, We never turned away a good divisive issue. Yeah. Uh, speaking of that, what did you think about our discussion today about the details of the fallen angels coming down on Mount Hermon. Well, I'll tell you, one of the things that's been rolling around in my head actually for a while now, and I'll have to do some more research, uh, maybe I shouldn't be throwing this out here. It's over not one of those worms that crawls through the brain, is it? Well, it could be, but okay. you never know. Did you ever see that Star Trek where they put the worm in the Yeah, you know, they copied that off a of night gallery. Oh, really? Yeah, there's mm-hmm. no night gallery where a guy had a worm ate through your brain. Oh, yeah. So what were you saying? Uh, I was going to say, one of the things that has peculiar my interest with several of our guests is they tend to make, they make some sort of a distinction about the spiritual... Uh, forces that are at work that they say sometimes it appears that there are two or three different groups that are doing yeah. their thing. And uh, 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 Dr. Burton's uh, um, stuff here tends to sort of uh, prop that information up, at least, you know, some, mm-hmm. from, from some. And he's just reciting the ancient records. Yes, yeah, from some circumstantial evidence. They say 200, 200, as we say in Kentucky, 200, 200 uh, come down and mm-hmm. do their thing in rebellion. You've also got 70 that are called to rule over the nations. Mm-hmm. Who knows what other confederacies there are out there? Yeah, it's a very it's a very interesting. It's a very organized sets of phases of rebellion. Yes, but there's the 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 whole point is, is that they're different. They're different groups. You've With got different sins and different judgments. Yeah, you've got the mm-hmm. the 70 that are sort of a, I would say you know localities, mm-hmm. principalities, and mm-hmm. powers, and you've got these other ones that are disembodied spirits. Speaking of rebels. Merv, would you come in and tell our listeners how they can contact us at FutureQuake? FutureQuake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or Internet and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the show's topics or guests or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. Good. Sorry to interrupt. Good. 
Good segue. We got to go. Tomorrow's the last segment. Mm-hmm. Uh, we hit the heaviest stuff of the, of the whole interview tomorrow. Ow. So with no further ado, uh, we hope your future's bright, and we'll see you tomorrow. Have a good day. Bye. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. quake, quake, quake. Welcome to the Thursday edition of the Future Quake Show. I am Dr. Future. And I am Tom, the Speed Talker Bionic. Well, and we've got another quick day today. This is the final segment with Judd Burton, historian, anthropologist, and author of Interview with the Giant, talking about Jesus' confrontation with the ancient giants and fallen angels. The last and best segment yet. Yes, let's go. No further ado, here's Mr. Burton. We'll be back to wrap it up here on Future Quake. Well, I, I, I want to move on. I know a lot of our listeners who are somewhat conversant in this topic are saying, okay, move on from the background. We want to get to some of the new stuff. Uh, and so we try to strike a balance here between people who are new to this for them to really grasp something that's challenging. Uh, sure. But but I want to get on to the new material, and, and I want people to get your book so they get really the details. But okay. the, I think one of the most critical premises is about this concept of, I, I believe it's Azazel. Uh, yes. Please talk about how how you think his attributes. You said quickly that he he had goat like attributes, and how much he sounded like what later became the mythological Pan. And mm-hmm. talk a little bit about how that has some foreshadowing in the Day of Atonement and the whole Jewish concept of the scapegoat, and back to this location on the side of Mount Hermon. Draw, try, try to bring that together for us, please. Is that all? Yeah, that's all. That's all in in thirty seconds or less. <laughs> okay, start the start the stopwatch. Um, the uh, I, I should should interject with a, a a brief sort of synopsis history of of bon, the side of Bonius. We first hear about about Bonius, which which in the the Greek period was called uh, Panaeus. We first hear about it from. Uh, the historian Polybius, and he's writing about a battle that took place there about 200 BC between the um, the Seleucids and the Ptolemies. You know, the, the leftovers of mm-hmm. Alexander the Great, basically. Uh, his armies, you know, his generals inherited the land. Anyway, um, the Seleucids and the Ptolemies fight, and the Seleucids win out, and they they take over the land of, of, that the shrine is in. And presumably the shrine had been there before under the auspices of the Ptolemies. Um, the Panium or Panaeon is how it's referred to in the account. And when you have the E-I-O-N, that denotes a, uh, a shrine, you know, that's, that's being used. And um, not really much to report uh, in the in the, in the Greek period, I'm of course with just the historical records because before that, references to the to the site of Bonius are pretty obscure, and we have to muddle through mm-hmm. some we have. But the Hellenic period is pretty uneventful. We, we have evidence that there were votive offerings at the at the shrine mm-hmm. at this cave at the headwaters of the Jordan, which is often referred to as the Grotto of Pan. Mm-hmm. Now. When the Romans come along uh, in 63 B.C., they, of course, take over uh, administration of Palestine. Um, the territory uh, then given to the Herodians. In 20 B.C., 
prepared the great builds in Augustaeum in honor of Caesar Augustus at the side of Panas. Uh, his son, Philip, is actually the one who begins to develop that side into a, a, a city. And it's under Philip that the site gets the name Caesarea Philippi to distinguish it from Caesarea Maritima on the mm-hmm. coast. Right. Caesarea Philippi, of course, we're familiar with because uh, Jesus brings his disciples here. Mm-hmm. Uh, he not only admits Messiah, but he ordains the church as well. This, mm-hmm. is, this is the birthplace of the church. Mm-hmm. Well, let, let, um, let me let me make, ask ask you something and yeah, clarify this yeah, wrong. Sure, go ahead. My understanding is that that this particular fallen angel, who was a prominent one in the writing, mm-hmm. Azazel, mm-hmm. was one of the ringleaders in really getting the bad stuff happening with the U.S. Yes. He was specifically called out in judgment and in binding, and putting yes. him under a bunch of rocks, a bunch of rubble, rubble, and a hole in the ground, but that he was described as having goat-like attributes, and that yes. these goat-like attributes were, were commonly associated with him. And then suddenly we see the advent suddenly, of this, this god Pan, yes. who yes. has these also these same goat-like attributes. And right. ironically, um, well, first of all, he has a real lust for women. He's known right. to be very had sexual prowess, and so exactly. just just like these these uh, fallen angels were, the, the the same character had the same kind of prowess, always chasing after women and doing things. But he also was very useful in battle, and yes. this was an area around this area that had lots of battles. It almost reminds me of like a little mini uh, Megiddo, and that there were yes. constant battles going on, and people would actually call out to Pan to help them. And some of the mm-hmm. mythology had this. So so they had this this hole, this mysterious hole in the ground, and they would actually send goats in there, sacrifices, uh, to this god Pan, if I understand right. So so you have this potential connection between this this fallen uh, uh, fallen angel, Azazel, and Pan. And then of all sorts of mysterious things, we see in the Day of Atonement, there are two goats. There's one that's taken and sacrificed at the altar, and there's another one that, that we have come to know as a scapegoat that's sent out. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. they didn't quite correctly translate what the word was. Can you tell us who that goat really was dedicated to and what happens to the goat? Uh, Azazel. And, and now, that's who they dedicate the... the goat to in Scripture. In our Scripture, yeah. the goat is dedicated to Azazel. As right, opposed to the one that's for our for our own redemption. What? Right. <laughs> yeah, that's in our scripture. This same fallen and, angel in the book of Adic is talked to is specifically uh, in our scripture as part of the Day of Atonement. Whoa. Yeah, and it it, it and, and the manner in which that sacrifice takes place is almost reminiscent of what happens in Enoch because um, the goat is bound. And it's pushed off a ledge, basically. Mm-hmm. And then the priests go down and uh, reclaim it after, you know, it's died this horrific death, you know, from toppling down this precipice. Mm-hmm. But getting back to, to Azazel, there, the connective tissue, I think, really between Pan at Panas and Azazel um, is linguistic. Now, conventional scholars, conventional scholarship, basically says that, okay, the shrine to Pan 
was probably and then you know it was probably probably a shrine to Bill before that. Mm-hmm. Well, that's certainly possible because we read about you know Bill Gad and Bill Herman and you know Bill worship was going on you know in all its various forms in that area. But the Ptolemies who had the site first were also making different shrines to Pan down in Egypt where they were situated for the most part. And they were choosing an Egyptian god to conflate with Pan, but it was ba- it was essentially the same in form and appearance. And that god's name was Kanum or a Kanemu, sometimes called Men as well. And it, it's this goat goat headed, you know, ram headed deity. And so I think that it's far more likely that the Ptolemies would find a deity who not only looked like Pan, but had similar attributes as Pan. And the deity in that region that we find that has the most similarity with Pan from the Enochian and biblical tradition is certainly Azazel. But we also have these other Semitic deities from Akkadian tradition that filtered down into the Amorite region nearby Bonyas. And we start to, we, we, we find out that they worshiped a deity called Odds or Odzaga, related to the words for goat, the, the Semitic words for goat, Odds and Uts. And Michael Heiser can, of course, mm-hmm. tell you more about that. I think it's more than coincidence. I think that it's more likely that they would have chosen a deity um, more similar to Pan. This would fall in line with what the Ptolemies were doing in Egypt at the time. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, if, I don't mean to skip back to this, but I want our listeners no, to address no, this. No. Is that when, when I mentioned Azazel with the with the Day of Atonement, which many people don't know, mm-hmm. what mm-hmm. I take from that, my my first understanding of the archetypes, is that the one goat I see as a sacrifice for mankind, mm-hmm. and that God accepts that sacrifice, the blood atonement right. and redemption, whereas mm-hmm. the other for Azazel is the one that's rejected. And right. it's thrown down that's, the same yeah, type it. of abyss mm. that Azazel's at. Right. In other words, God is almost still sending this whole concept of atonement or being made right with God. He's saying, man, mm. at this time, you're still available to come and get atonement to me. Well, look, mm. look at the lesson from these other fallen creatures. They get to a point where their atonement is, is rejected and always will be rejected. Right. So it's, exactly. it's a stark warning. It's one to remind people of their history. And what God saved them from is that God mm-hmm. saved a, 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 you know, a sacrifice that he would still accept. And that's why he preserved the bloodline through Jesus for an acceptable sure. sacrifice for us. Whereas rejection is also possible for those, you know, is to show the, the love that he showed for mankind. Uh, so, so I see this as being sort of a rejection. But I find it very interesting when Jesus is up in that same territory up there, mm-hmm. and he mm-hmm. and he he runs like the one the demoniac I mentioned before, and uh-huh. and, and these demons do not want to be sent to the abyss, uh-huh. and what does he do? He sends them in animals and then runs them off a cliff. So right. we have this other cliff scenario, where these beings are being driven off basically to oblivion. Uh, exactly. So, so it's like yeah, you, you, a similar recurring theme over and over again. Yeah, you hit the nail on the head there. Yeah. Do you, let me ask you this. Do you believe that Azazel may be buried somewhere deep below that section of uh, Benial or Benias down there um, underneath Mount Hermon? 
I, I like it's certainly plausible. I, I I hesitate to make any any sort of firm statement about about that being the case. Uh, but it, it's certainly possible. Like I said, it it's it's just very very interesting, very provocative that you've got this goat deity that's similar to Azazel. Mm-hmm. who lands on Mount Hermon. Um, you've got this goat deity in the Semitic tradition, and you have Pan who comes along. Mm-hmm. The, presumably the Greeks bring him. I'm not, all conv- not altogether convinced that the Greeks bring him. It may be the other mm-hmm. way around. It would be quite a coincidence if all that didn't have a relationship to each other. Yeah, I would, th- I would think you would think so. Well... Um, you know, I know our time is short. I don't mean to hustle us along, oh, sure, but, but sure. I think it's yeah. critical here in our last segment of our interview that we focus on what Jesus did. And and in your book, methodically lays out the rationale to believe that likely Jesus was right in this exact same vicinity when he made very important pronouncements about his deity, what his mission was, and what he was establishing. I believe as a counter to what these fallen angels were doing. Can, can you very briefly describe that? What 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 are the steps he took, you think, there? It's talked about in the sure. Gospels. Um, yeah, I, 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 and of course, this this relates almost directly with my dissertation work. Um, I, I believe that there were very, uh, very exact and deliberate reasons that Jesus chose to go to Caesarea, Caesarea Philippi and make statements that he did. Mm-hmm. Um, we read in in uh, Matthew chapter 16 and, and Mark chapter 8. Mark is probably the earlier text. But we read about, about Jesus taking his disciples um, to the region, to the villages uh, of Caesarea Philippi. And Jesus does this for a number of reasons, I think. The the immediate one that comes to mind is, well, his cousin John had just been beheaded, and he's taking his disciples out of the reach of Herod Antipas into Philip's territory so that they can sort of regroup and study and rest and pray. That, to me, mm-hmm. makes just ab- abundant sense. I mean, if you, mm-hmm. even if theological concerns aside, that, that should make sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but the... the, the the geography is also important because what happens? He's coming to this shrine, Panaeus, Caesarea Philippi, that's at the foot of Mount Hermon, where these events took place, where the fallen angels fell, where the Nephilim sprang. This is also the ancient tribal region of Dan. Dan is just four miles to the west of Bonius. Mm-hmm. And so you're in you're in the region of an apostate tribe, a tribe that that chose mm-hmm. to uh, follow the uh, Canaanite cults. Mm-hmm. And so when Jesus says uh, the things that he does at Caesarea Philippi, when he ad- he admits messiahship, when he ordains the church, when he says that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He may have been using the Grotto of Pan mm-hmm. because these caves were symbols of the underworld. But I think to limit it to that is a mistake, simply mm-hmm. because 
of the importance of Mount Hermon to the Jewish apocalyptic tradition, which those disciples and Jesus were part of, were familiar mm-hmm. with. And so he's, he's, he's using all of this as a backdrop, uh, but he's, he's making, a, making these statements as an affront not just to paganism, the, the Roman paganism there and the Roman rule, but also to the greater evil rule of Satan and the fallen angels. I think that's a profound uh, discovery, and I would just like to comment as a layperson on what I take from that. You know, um, right he's in, in Caesarea Philippi, right there at the, the edge of Hermon, it says that he takes uh, some of the apostles up to a very high mountain. Well, the very high yeah. mountain there is Mount Hermon, where it said that these angels came down. The area that's their turf, it's on their playing field, where they've, mm-hmm. where they've held all this time. He goes up there and transfigures Yes. He, he actually becomes sort of the, um, I would say, the cosmic version of Jesus. Okay, mm-hmm. the powerful Come demonstration. I'm not saying cosmic <laughs> Christ. I'm saying he's a he's he's in his power and glory. Not right. only that, you see the you see a representative of the law and the prophets that come, and basically endorse. Show their, you know, to to these Jewish guys, yeah, this is the real deal, and it really shows that this is an ancient battle that goes through the whole yeah. time of the history of their nation, the Law and the Prophets, where they preserve this teaching, the Law and the Prophets, yeah. both as well as the bloodline that Jesus was the fulfillment of of this age-old battle. But Jesus Absolutely. is showing who he is. Basically, he's saying the sheriff has come to town. To, right. to these heavenlies. And you know, there, there's another set of teaching we can go into. Mike Heiser and others talk about how the sons of God uh, later were giving administration over the 70 nations of the earth. And, and that's something else that has lots of biblical background to that, uh, that yeah. we're administering the earth after the tower. Uh, and I could see very well that Jesus come in as, is as basically casting a shot across the bow to them as well, saying, uh, just like Psalm 82 says, your administration is going to be over soon, and the That's true right. leader is coming, and I am showing myself. And, and when he when he tells the others coming back, and he says, uh, you know, I'm going to build this church, my church on this rock, and the gates of hell will not prevail, or gates of Hades. Mm-hmm. And you think about Azazel possibly being in that same vicinity, maybe even below their feet, under all mm-hmm. this rubble in the abyss. And you yeah. hear him saying the gates of hell. I looked up the Greek word for gates used there, and it talks mm-hmm. about that the gates or the opening is to a prison. Yeah. So if this was actually, if he's talking about that the prison, basically the prison uh, yard, and the gates mm-hmm. are not going to be able to prevail, he's doing that right on the spot where these fallen creatures knew, as well mm-hmm. as his followers knew. Hey, this is where they taught about these deadly creatures, and you know they were fearful uh, of this area. They were fearful of, um, uh, you know, even going across to the other side of the Sea of Galilee because of mm-hmm. the dark evil forces of the northern part right. of the country. And, and the northern right. regions have always been fearful in their literature. So, so they're in sure. this area that they know was under dark administration for a long time, and, and still under that influence. And, sure. and he is saying. You're going to take over, and you're going to be the leaders over all this. And, you know, when he says what what uh, you will bound on earth will be bound in heaven, I can't help but think about the archangels that were bound these angels. Mm-hmm. And, and they were suffering under the binding they had done for disobedience. And here he's saying these mm-hmm. little weakly uh, humans who were scared of a little storm on a sea 
are mm-hmm. now going to be the ones to to bind things like these spiritual forces. Right. It 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 is a, is a stunning view of the cosmic view of Jesus talking it, it truly, to, the, to his human followers, but o- over their heads to to the rest of the universe that things are going to change, and this was the big plan to deal with all of you. Yes, I mean truly. I mean the you know really the Jesus's words during this this time period are just pregnant with meaning. I mean the the context in which they're said is just incredible. Um, and you know when people when people come to realize this, you know through their own study, it's just it's very emotional. It was for me. It just blew me over. Um, but uh, you're right. It is like a shot over the bow. You, you know, your time is almost over, mm-hmm. and you're about to be handed over to the punishment you were reserved for. I, I, I think your discovery of this and, and your proposing this uh, theory is, is to me is mind-blowing, and it means that people need to go back and read the Gospels in light to what God was saying to the heavenly host and powers, not just to the Pharisees and his disciples. Um, I yes. would I would submit that even when he cursed the fig tree, that he was representing that toward the heavenly host as well, too, uh, telling sure. the well, administration that, that, is over. That happened, you know, between Caesarea Philippi and, and Jerusalem when he comes in to, uh, to give that last set of sermons. Well, mm. I, I think we need to exploit this further. And unfortunately, we're right here at the end of our time here. But i got to <laughs> ask you, I want, but, but hopefully this will get people enough where they need to get the hold of your book. It is a reference mm-hmm. that every, every believer, every student needs on their shelf as uh, a basic primer. You, you won't find any other books with this level of detail that you have in your book. But, but I want to ask you one quick thing with one minute. Uh, when I hear your reading in, in the book about the, the, the features of these giants, like their six fingers and other mm-hmm. things like that, I couldn't help but think of the mysterious group of people here in the U.S. The Melungians. The Melungians, who, who uh, they've identified them to be of Mediterranean stock, possibly from mm-hmm. southern Turkey or Lebanon, mm-hmm. and they are known to have six fingers. And a mysterious it, group. It, have you ever thought about just looking at their lineage to see if there's any kind of shadows? I, I have. I have. It's interesting. I was a little shocked that I found this question amongst the rest of them. That, that I, I, I used to work, stuck that in there. Yeah, I used to work for a genealogist when I was working on my master's degree, and um, he had a, a branch of his family was related to the Melungeons. Huh. And uh, so, you know, I, I entered, uh, you know, a, a good number of Melungeon uh, branch family members in this database he was putting together. And I, I knew that they had ties to uh, the Mediterranean, and I, I, I had even heard uh, Arabic uh, descent. But uh, as far as the the uh, the six fingered, I, I had never given that any thought. But that that is piquing my interest right now. Well, I just just wonder if there's some shadows over here in this area. You know, and there's some interesting people. I don't know if you knew Elvis Presley was a Melungeon. Is that right? Yes. I, I didn't know that. <laughs> So uh, that's just a little that that's my contribution to your research there, and I'm sure there's a direct biblical connection to that. I guess that. he was lying when he Bam. said I ain't nothing but a hound dog. Well, he could have been exactly. half, he could have been a hound dog chimera yeah, for all we know. Uh, we're at the end of the rope, uh, and I want to tell our listeners. I hopefully they're they're setting up and mulling over what we just talked about, but how can they get your book and uh, find well, out more about what you have in it? 
Well, they can uh, they can do that, and they can keep up with the research and the development of the Institute of Biblical Anthropology. They can go to the the website uh, www.usavtx.org/iba, mm-hmm. and I will have a link on that on the homepage very soon, uh, probably within the next 24 hours or so, so that they can actually click on that to purchase the book. I'm self-publishing it for the time being, but. Uh, uh, it, it'll be it'll be available uh, through the IBA website. Well, uh, at the, and th- this will be uploaded and and on online about three or four days after the day we're recording this. So your website hopefully should be functional by then, and they'll be able to get the, their access to the book. We have tens of thousands of listeners that can't get enough Nephilim, so I think they'll hit the bonanza in your book. Yeah. And uh, is that leak uh, a leak we could put on our website? Absolutely. Where where they where they get this book? Anything else they sure. need to know to continue to follow the research? Uh, search for the truth. If you're searching for the truth, you can't go wrong. Um, uh, that's my personal advice. Uh, right. But as 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 far as keeping up with uh, our research, right. like I said, keep up with the IBA. Uh, go to the website there. You can also visit my website, BurtonBeyond.com. There are developments. Okay. periodically on that and please please tell folks to email me um mm-hmm. i you know like i said we're a forum and and i will i will shoot back to you as soon as i can mm-hmm. um my if you want my uh, email address i can shout that out too uh if you don't mind our public knowing it yeah sure it's a uh, professor burton mm-hmm. at yahoo.com professor burton yahoo.com uh mm-hmm. do you think they're coming back the Nephilim? I do. I do think that they're coming back. I, the, the biblical text is, is very explicit. And as I said before, you know, Jesus' words were pregnant with meaning. I don't. He could have chosen any other mm-hmm. example outside the days of mm-hmm. Noah to illustrate surprise and mm-hmm. shock, but he chose the days of Noah. Mm-hmm. So, yes, they are, they are coming back. And so, I, w- I would pop it relatively soon. Well, it'd be a good idea for your uh, for our listeners to get a hold of your book so they know what to look for. Uh, I, I know Barry Comish, when he wrote Return of the Giants in Israel, uh, said mm-hmm. that when they had their UFO flap around there, all of the people in the public reported that they saw giants walking around after that. So uh-huh. we live in strange days. And uh, I want to thank you for coming on our show. Do you think you might come back again? Absolutely. I I. I thankful that you let me come on well i think this will be another classic show that uh people will play again and again and just thank you so much for coming on our show tonight you bet okay thanks again and god bless come back soon we're back at future quake with dr future and t bionic and that's it that's uh it. we're done we talked oh. about jesus uh Hooray. actually telling them awesome these are to take over here to take over. It's good news, isn't it? It's good news. Speaking it's, of good it, news. And it's good to be informed yeah. about what's going on. And somebody else who, who uh, can help you inform us is Merv. Would you tell them how to contact us at Future Quake? Future Quake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or Internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the show's topics or guests or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. 
Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. Okay, that's it. Right. Till tomorrow's Tremors tomorrow, review of the news. Mm-hmm. Till then, we hope your future is always bright. Bye. Have a good day. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. quake, quake, quake. Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I am Dr. Future. And I am Tom. Let's read Revelation 18 and then look at the news. Bionic. Boy, very apt description there. Yeah, a little bit of uh, foreshadowing there in the middle name. Do you know what today is? Today is the day that we uh, go get some pancakes. You know what? That would be a nice tradition also for today. But I was referring to tomorrow's tremors or today's review of the future's news. Oh, really? This is you mean we're not we, getting pancakes? We take our break from our normal interviews with our guests. Uh, and just to review the news today, uh, I, I think we had a great show with uh, Jed Burton. It was good. I mean, that was really was talking about some things that mm-hmm. you never really thought about the words that Jesus said, who he was talking to, or the history of why he did what he did where he did. Well, I find I find his interview, at, uh, speaking just for myself, uh, particularly interesting because I've had this line of thinking that I really haven't shared with anybody for a while now that... There's something more going on in the text there. Like, those words are for everybody, you mm-hmm. know, uh, believers and non-believers, certainly, but also possibly even for the, you know, heavens. Well, yeah, and well, that's that's wow. also, I made that point, too, that yeah. I think it's, uh, he was talking to a celestial audience, too, that mm-hmm. the sheriff was in town. Yes. Uh, I'd, I'd recommend our listeners, um, if you're only catching our news here, to go to futurequake.com and listen to that entire interview. Mm-hmm. Uh, we get lots of people who decided once they find that stockpile of free inter- uh, free interviews and shows, mm-hmm. they just go start listening to all of them. Yeah. I'm amazed that people do it, but it seems like they're finding information there they don't find just everywhere that has a biblical worldview. Well, you know, it's interesting. The more The more I find out about people, the more they have sworn off news and uh, the mainstream media. Mm-hmm. I'm finding that... Yeah, uh, news is probably not a good term for it. It's uh, uh, commercial, propaganda. promotional stuff. Yeah, yeah it's promotional Extended stuff propaganda. disguised as yeah. news. Um, I'm, I'm finding that with my own little, you know, podunk little yeah. Mighty Tom's Bible study. I get more and more emails from people saying that yeah. we're glad you're doing this. We're tired of listening to uh, XYZ. Mm-hmm. Well, I have some emails with me here Uh-oh. that say just that. If We haven't done email reading in a long time on mm-hmm. Future Quake. It's partially because I've been gone most of the summer, and I told people I had to catch up on emails. Mm-hmm. And I've been trying to go a few days back at a time. So if you email me earlier this summer, be patient. It's going to take me a while, but I'll get back to respond to everybody's mm-hmm. emails. But I'd like to share just a few of them because some of them have some interesting tidbits. In yes. Them. Now, exactly. I'm just, I'm just re- reading the ones where people told me I could share it on air. If you sent me an email, particularly uh, something encouraging to us, our listeners, or our story, Please be sure and let us know that if we're allowed to read it on air, okay? Yes, please. And so if you were to even send us something, send us an email saying, oh, by the way, you can read on air what I sent mm-hmm. you or or in the future. But I'm, I, this is one from uh, uh, Dr. Pam. Uh, I'm not going to use last names in these emails, but Dr. Pam, you know who you are. Um, in uh, and, and her last response, she says, uh, Dear Dr. Future, I'm one of those folks that found you via Coast to Coast. That's when we were on with George Norrie. Mm-hmm. Says, I'm over- what do you mean, we? <laughs> well, uh, it says, I'm overjoyed to find an intelligently presented Christian perspective on alternative news and information. 
That's very nice. I hope she yeah, got it to the right email sweet. address, but yeah. I hope that she meant sure us. that wasn't coast to coast? Yeah, but <laughs> she says, an intelligent presented Christian perspective. One of my patients sent me the information below. The content is self-explanatory. Feel free to use as you see fit. We're definitely not getting the whole story. God bless you in your work, Dr. Pam. Um, this was something that uh, she was sent to one of her patients. It says, this is an email from my brother-in-law. Several of, of his family work in hospitals in southern Indiana. The administration is starting to freak on this because the Centers of Disease Control has found it found and documented the mutation of H1N1. Um, it, and this is something they sent internally, just based upon meeting the hospital. It mm-hmm. says, just spent 12 hours in training the last two days for H1N1 virus. Please get your family ready. That's all in caps. This is them from getting the key information. Stockpile some storable food and medications. This is based upon the briefing they got internally in the hospital. Mm -hmm. From what I've learned over the last few days, this virus is spreading faster than any flu virus ever, and the patterns are showing it is mutating, and some antiviral medications are not as effective as in the past. There are cases right now in our area. So if it's not going to be effective, why add additional danger with the vaccine? Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't mean to scare anyone, but if this goes as CDC thinks, we will be in for a long fall and winter. Prepare for the worst and pray for the best. Now, uh, I reviewed some of that material that they had. They had some actual stuff in the hospital I saw. Uh, the, the, the problem is is that I don't know whether to believe what, if the government is trying to scare everybody to give them to get submission to the government mm-hmm. or if it's really going to be that bad. I mean, I know what they said. I mean, they're reporting just what they were told. Mm-hmm. But I don't know whether it's bad or not. But things are going to be difficult for us on whether whether what happens is deception or whether it's real. Hmm. But something bad's going to happen. Um, um, comment? I'm just, yeah. It, it goes back and forth on, in my mind. You know, there seems to be a group of people who say, well, they're trying to bring in martial law with this whole thing. And, it's a, you know, it's a big joke. And nobody's going to die. And then there are other people saying they're going to kill off. This is their. This mm-hmm. is wave one of a 95 percent population reduction. Right. You know. Well, one thing we know for sure. Right. Maybe both. If it was Maybe engineered. Both. If it was engineered, and they put it in, mm-hmm. then why would we trust their vaccines? If the same people are making the vaccines. Sure. So. I don't trust anybody. I think anymore. you'd be better be holing out. Yeah. In fact, if everybody would just hole out, you and I could hole in here in the Future Quake studio. Yeah. We could just do 24 hour a day Future Quake. Oh, wouldn't that be awesome? Send Pyro out doing, for bring some food from I'd the cellar. I'd be doing Mighty Tom's Bible study for an hour, and then we do this, and you'd listen yeah. to Mighty Tom's Bible study and go, had, <laughs> What Bible are you reading? I hadn't really thought these events as being awesome. <laughs> I don't know that description I'd use, but, you know. Yeah. Here's another one from Brother Dale. Um, Brother Dale sent one here. It says, uh, I'm not one to do this very often. However, I appreciate your show so much, and I'm taking some time to let you know Future Quake has done an incredible job of educating and updating a sleeping giant, namely the church. Wow. Uh, I'm not reading these to, to pat us on the back for their bed, but the, what, this, this is, is proof that what we're thinking, there's other people thinking. Yeah. And listeners out there, if you're thinking some of these thoughts, there's other people around the country, around the world, thinking just like the rest of us. Mm-hmm. It says, the blend of topics and forums along with the guests are giving people the opportunity to actually think rather than nod off slowly because they hear the same information repackaged over and over again. I think they're talking about other shows. Yes. The hosts are thought-provoking and times at times provoking, but always bring something to the table that is relevant today. Their honesty and sense of humor keeps me hooked. If people perish for lack of wisdom, then perhaps this small beacon in the night will help spark something much larger. Thank you for being on the edge of important issues today. 
P.S. The Constance Cumbie interview really had to tick some people off. I loved it. <laughs> P.P.S. Tom's bionic middle name is hilarious. What's his real name, though? I can't tell you. I can people tell you, just but have I have to, to destroy you. Mm-hmm. Well, pr- probably when FEMA tries to destroy you, they'll have that in here. here, here here's another one. Do, do you mind me going through these? No, no, no. I'm, I'm loving it. This is uh, Lynn. Um, uh, Lynn says, uh, I got your email address from a friend of mine, Bill Salas, one of the authors of a book coming out. Uh, under the title Frightening Issues, which also I wrote a chapter of. Oh. Give me a sneak preview of the content. Uh, and uh, it says, I want to share with you a particular experience I had many years ago while I was in the Naval Reserve. I think you'll find it interesting in view of your subject matter and your chapter, your book. I, I will say that it's great that so many authors have decided to collaborate. Um, okay, here's what they said. Uh, it was 1976, and I got discharged out of active duty after two years in the Navy on the USS Buchanan. I'd served Naval Reserve and required two years of active duty. Uh, I was assigned to the Naval Reserve Base in California and was to report for one a week and a month reserve training. It was a large naval complex uh, in the San Fernando Valley of Southern California. Mm-hmm. The requirement was for me to report one week and a month for duty in two weeks. I uh, did that religiously. But in 77, I had a full-time job. Uh, that basically I, I could not afford the two weeks off. I sought advice from the commander of the Naval Reserve, uh, and so they they resigned them to a, a base in Reseda. Uh, as I showed up Monday to serve my my duty, uh, when I arrived at the base, I found a parking lot filled with police cars from the LAPD. There was probably a hundred of them. Mm-hmm. The base was fairly large, one off Balboa Boulevard, mm-hmm. and had a huge gym-like auditorium, classrooms, and a basement. In all times uh, that I attended my weekend warrior naval meetings, it, the parking lot was never full, except for now. Mm-hmm. It says, uh, it says, I found a place to park, went in a report. I wondered what was going on. Says, I asked them there, and they said uh, that the LAPD was practicing for food riots at their facility. I responded with, food riots? And one of them answered that they have their drills there at the reserve center every few months. And I asked them what is a food riot. And they said, what do you think will happen in any large city if food is no longer being delivered daily to your grocery store? And they all answered in unison, food riots. So, uh, and they go on and on about this, how that is basically, they've been preparing for this for decades. For the eventuality of, of food riots that are going well, on. Well, you know how you beat a food riot? How's that? You get some beforehand. Really? Yeah. Okay. It's like, wow. People, there's no food on the shelves. Well, I guess I'll just have to go to my basement here and get some rice and beans. There's no rice. And, uh, some that pork. sounds like a pretty simple solution. Fat, yeah, and some type of something that has fat in it because that's the hard thing to get right. in a crisis situation. Okay. Here's the last one I just want to share. We'll move on to our stories. This is from Denny. Um, Denny says, I'm fairly new to the website and love you guys. Keep it up. Oh, by the way, I just uh, or something, I forget what I was going to mention there. Uh, fairly new to your website and love you guys. Keep it up. The past radio show's guests are great. Dr. Future is scholarly and organized. Tom, quote, the listener sometimes wonders about him, unquote, bionic, is fun. <laughs> He's referring to your, middle, your name. middle name. You all work well together. I wish I could listen live in Nashville every day. Uh, you guys are many of a growing list of Internet Christian bloggers and reporters that are making these troubled times very exciting. Well, I'd like to give a little plug out to our bros that are over there at Revelations Radio Network because mm-hmm. they... Um, they do the same Wise thing. Wise and Serpents, uh, yeah. the uh, Nowhere to Run, Frank and Chris Show. Frank and Chris Show. Yeah. Uh, 
R3PCR mm-hmm. or something like that. Some acronym. P- P- PID radio. Yeah, PID. Uh, more importantly, you guys are keeping us average folks informed. This growing Christian family of Internet-connected folks is vital to staying ahead of the deceitful tactics and moves of the enemy in these crazy days just before the return of Jesus. It says, while many of today's churches steer clear of the more spiritual prophetic ma- matters, much to the detriment of their congregations, you who are driving this recent wave of alternative Christian resource are quite possibly the founding members of what may become the new, perhaps only means for the body of Christ to communicate on a mass scale. Wow. It is just a matter of time, isn't it, when the forces that ban Christianity of any kind of TV, radio, and print. Mm-hmm. They are targeting Internet already, but perhaps the Lord will allow this means of communication to continue on despite the common crackdowns. You guys keep it up as long as vigorously as you can while God gives you the time and the means to. You're needed terribly right now and the future, 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 future. And uh, they said they enjoyed the interview with Jay Red. Quick, 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 yeah, quick. With they enjoyed the interview with Jay Red. Yeah. Uh, and said he's a super guy. He is. So that's just a few emails. That's awesome. Get probably ten or fifteen a day of that. Very intelligent people. They know what's going on in the world. Yeah. That's our futurians, and that's why when you look on the side of the future mobile. You'll actually see a big castle that the Futurians live right behind you and they're me. They're coming out with swords. And they're, they're coming they out come. for battle, and they got a big flag of truth over them. Mm-hmm. It's not just you and I no, and it's Pyro everybody. and Merv. It's all of you people. The reason the reason we're doing this is because we think we're, you know, it's important. But the other thing is is that so many of you other people can take and take this information and burn it. It's not just Burn it us, on a DVD or CD. Burn yeah. on a CD. Just give it to everybody you know. Yeah. It's not CDs just are us. cheap. We're a family. Free. Yeah. You know? You somewhat have, dysfunctional, but... You have permission <laughs> to burn the stuff, our shows. Just yeah. give anybody you want. It's virtually mm-hmm. free. Mm-hmm. Uh, just bring up, see what people think about it. Mm-hmm. Um, if you call on radio shows, mm-hmm. just mention, hey, I heard this on Future Quake, or what do you yeah. think about the future? Or, or if you go to discussion forums mm-hmm. on the Internet, bring up something you heard in a Future Quake show. Yeah. Uh, you all really will be the ones that make or break us continue to grow and, and mm-hmm. have more of an impact yeah. on people. So I would like to throw out a... Speaking of burning discs... Um, the Harvest Project, that thing that we're doing, I'm doing with uh, uh, brother Chris White, one of our mm-hmm. past guests. If you go to dvdtrack.com, there's actually you can actually download a little DVD file there. There's directions on how to do it, but it's the Gospel in 20 minutes. If you want to give somebody the Gospel, uh, it's there for you to look at at dvdtrack.com. Okay. Gospel in 20 minutes. Yeah, um, spreading seed. Yeah, instead of because um, it's you know sometimes it's hard to talk to people. Right, which is why, and it's non-threatening. People can take it; they don't feel like they're put on the spot That's with somebody. The they can powder just them and yep. the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. Okay, I, off my little off got, my a, little. got a story for us. I do. Um, I got some juicy ones too. Oh gosh, okay. it's hard to get them all together. I, I got. I'm going to go fast, and I'm just going to do kind of a quick overview. Got it. Yeah. Uh, polio surge in Nigeria after vaccine virus mutates. Um, it's written by Mark uh, Maria Chang. Uh, Polio, the dreaded paralyzing disease stamped out in the industrialized world, is spreading in Nigeria, and health officials say in some cases it's caused by the vaccine used to fight it. In July, the World uh, uh, World Health Organization issued a warning that this vaccine-spread virus might extend beyond Africa. Uh, The polio problem is just the latest challenge to global health authorities trying to convince wary citizens that vaccines can save them from dreaded diseases. Uh, Nigeria and most other poor countries use an oral polio vaccine because it's cheaper, easier, and protects entire communities. But it's made from a live polio virus, albeit weakened, which carries a small risk of causing polio for every million or so doses given. 
In even rare instances, the virus and the vaccine can mutate into a deadlier version that ignites huge outbreaks. So when the, uh, the vaccine used in the United States is given in shots, uh, which use a killed virus that cannot cause polio, uh, uh, the World Health Organization discovered a polio outbreak in Nigeria that was sparked by the polio vaccine itself. Uh, and for a while, they assumed that it would be easier to stop than a natural wild virus. They were wrong. Uh, reported, uh, the health expert reported that amid Nigeria's outgoing outbreak, 69 children have been paralyzed. Uh, the vaccine-linked outbreak would be sw uh, swiftly overcome. Uh, yet two years later, cases continue to mount. They can't figure out how to stop it. Uh, this year, the, the number of polio cases caused by the vaccine has doubled uh, just from this outbreak. Um, and the Nigerian leaders suspended up, ended up suspending polio vaccination in 2003, be, believing the vaccine would sterilize their children and infect them with HIV. Uh, mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. um, but Nigeria resumed vaccinations in 2004 after tests showed the vaccine was not contaminated with estrogen, anti-fertility agents, or HIV. Mm -hmm. um, you have to get that for the food supply. Yes, if you want estrogen. Yes. Hmm. Um, wow. And anyway, so they it goes on here to say that uh, genetic analysis analysis. Uh, proves mutated viruses from the vaccine have caused at least seven separate outbreaks in Nigeria in just the last two years. Wow. Another supportive story of our yeah. vaccination process and those who oversee it. And yet here at the World Health Organization and the U.S. CDC say, well, the oral vaccine is the best tool available to eradicate the polio, uh, to eradicate polio um, until a better vaccine is ready, even though it's causing huge outbreaks of it, hmm. you know. Well, I could go. I could go on. Okay. It's just so ridiculous. Listen to next week's show. Yeah, next week's show will give you the the straight story on this. Mm -hmm. uh, I have a story, a very brief one. And if we haven't alienated ourselves from people who think we're nuts, uh, this ought to do it. Uh, right. Okay. Uh, this came from a newspaper uh, called Ooh. the. Uh, this is called the News Chief in Winter Haven, Florida, I believe. Regular newspaper. I uh, had this release on their regular news wires there and published. Uh, from David Scrimshaw. Uh, it says, Cause of destruction of World Trade Center discovered. Uh, it just came out in the last week. As disturbing as 911 was, the peer reviewed paper of Dr. Niels Herrett of the University of Copenhagen is causing shock waves around the world. Okay, so this, whatever this is, you're going to reveal, it was a peer reviewed paper by other scientists. Peer reviewed paper by other scientists in a mainstream news article. Okay. okay. All right. Got it. In the paper, quoted, active thermetic material. Discovered in dust from the 911 World Trade Center catastrophe. In the Open Chemical Physics Journal, Volume 2, 2009, okay, peer reviewed journal, mm -hmm. academic journal, Dr. Herod and eight other scientists from Denmark, the United States, and Australia report the actual cause of the destruction of Towers 1, 2, and 7 in New York almost eight years ago. Nanothermite, a mixture of aluminum and rust powder, reacts to intense heat of 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit, producing molten iron and an effective explosion. Mm -hmm. It can be used as rocket fuel and contains more energy than dynamite. Over 10 tons have been estimated to have been found in Manhattan near the site. 10 tons? 10 tons. While thermite can be uh, bought by anyone for welding, which produces iron, the nanoprocess is performed by and for military uses only. 
In an interview with Germany's Gulli.com, G-U-L-L-I.com, Dr. Herrett was asked how the substance could have been placed in the towers. Mark Lazo, an expert on demolition and whose company was assigned the cleanup of Ground Zero, mm-hmm. has claimed to know nothing about the existence of nanothermite. Dr. Herrett refused to speculate, calling instead for a criminal investigation. When asked if a copy of the paper had been sent to the FBI, he responded, yes, a copy has actually been sent to the FBI. I'm not in a position to give a full account of the response, but as I recall, it was surprisingly receptive. Wow. So, uh, well, whoever did that, if if all of that stuff is true, whoever did that needs to be investigated, and that's just, you know, we're going to have to open up a new investigation about that. Uh, I mean... Peer-reviewed paper, folks. There it is, right yeah. there. Boom. And, and actually, Dr. Stephen Jones, Ten tons. Uh, who who is a uh, one of the best-known physicists in the world, um, and in Utah, actually was one of the guys, one of the first scientists before you got a large team of scientists mm-hmm. that had actually his uh, early data right. suggested yeah. that's what it was from actual yeah. World and, Trade Center. And, for, and, and he for, sent it to multiple labs, including Clemson and places like that. And mm-hmm. They all found this very unique material. And I'll tell you what, he ago. was out there given that given that given that data for a while, and he ended up losing his job. Lost his job because of his commitment. Yeah. Truth. And And uh, he felt like it I'm was... I'm glad a I don't have employers that make me lose my job. To, well, you've never yeah. seen me threaten threaten that. Can I do one other little quickie? I was going to say, you know, um, let's talk about Hal Turner, but it looks like you're already going to do that. Okay. Can I? Yeah. Uh, this is another one you need to chew on and think about. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hal Turner, a trained FBI agent provocateur. I know all that stuff he's saying about... Reducing the world population and the Braves no. being on TV. Oh, wait, that's Ted Turner. Yeah, <laughs> another provocateur. Yeah. Radio talk show host and blogger Hal Turner was an FBI-trained agent provocateur, his agent told reporters in Hartford today. Mm-hmm. The supposed white supremacist worked for the agency from 2007 to 2009. So, his, wait, 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 yeah, wait. He's a his popular attorney, guy on the Internet. His popular. attorney said that. Well, his attorney said that, right. Also, the FBI, from I've read other sources, has confirmed at some time he was an agent provocateur. So both sides have confirmed. So there's no dispute that he is an agent provocateur. Yes, and he was a very uh, polarizing Internet and radio figure. Actually, he was very close to Sean Hannity. He and Sean Hannity were, he was frequently on his show. Hal Turner was? Hal Turner. Um, But Hal Turner is one of these guys who was trying to provoke people to kill, go after people. Turned out the FBI was pulling the strings on the guy. Okay, okay? so and I want to put. I, I, I'd like to finish this because okay, then yeah. I want to put it in perspective. Okay, mm-hmm. it says his job was to basically publish information which would cause other parties to act in a manner that would lead to their arrest. Uh, Mike Arcozo told the Associated Press uh, earlier this year. Tone, Turner told his blog readers to take up arms against Connecticut lawmakers. He also said government officials should obey the Constitution or die. In June, he wrote that the Illinois federal appeals judges deserve to be killed because they issued a ruling that upheld ordinances in Chicago uh, and Oak Park banning handguns. Turner included photos of the judges and their room numbers in the chambers of the courthouse. Uh, Orcozo, this is his attorney, said he plans First Amendment defenses of both Connecticut and Illinois cases. Under the Cointel program, this is some commentary mm-hmm. from the writer here, COINTELPRO in the 60s and early 70s, the FBI used a variety of dirty tricks against its targets, including wiretapping and assassination, as well as the use of agents provocateurs in coordination with state and local police. As the case against Turner and the revelations of attorney reveal, the government did not abandon its COINTELPRO tactics as it claimed in the mid-70s. 
The FBI, acting as the establishment's political secret police, continues to undermine political movements the elite consider dangerous and a threat to their control and influence. Members of the Patriot Movement, in particular, should take note of Turner's revelation. The government is not interested in subverting the globalist foundation comprised and neutered the so-called left, but rather a growing Patriot Movement that demands an end to the Federal Reserve, return to constitutional republic, and resistance to predatory globalism. Hal Turner specifically attempted to appeal to the Patriot Movement and the Constitutionalists. It should serve as a wake-up call that the FBI trained him as an agent provocateur. I have seen this in other mainstream articles that have said yeah. the same information. So, so just to just to recap here, this gentleman named Hal Turner, who's been on Sean Hannity numerous times, that's who's, that's what I recollect from from who's my been, reading. Yeah, who's been saying background? Who's been saying all sorts of stuff that Illinois government right. governors need to be killed, or Connecticut governors need to be killed, Illinois state state judges need to be killed, people need to uphold the Constitution or be killed. Uh, has been working for the FBI as an agent provocateur. Right. And both sides admit that. Both right. his lawyers and the FBI. And the data I've seen, yes. No, there's Rest. no... The only thing they may dis- dispute on is is what phases of time he was a provocateur. But um, he was he was on their payroll. Now, the point I want to make is, is that uh, we picture our government agencies fighting bad people, terrorists, whether they're domestic or overseas terrorists, mm-hmm, but it shows right not they, creating them. Yeah, they, they created they're one. They're creating them. Mm-hmm. Now, if you need further evidence of this, um, we, recently there was uh, some guys that were arrested about a bomb plot to blow up like a bridge and things like this. And, yeah. Oh, shoot a man pad on an uh, airplane. Mm-hmm. Well, when I saw that, I said, look, uh, Alex Jones and other people have already had the goods on these before. Somebody in the FBI set this up. Later, in the fine print, they said on TV, an FBI guy totally came out. He yeah. pulled them together. The FBI guy pulled mm-hmm. them together and actually prompted them to do it. And, and over and over again, we have evidence. There's been overwhelming evidence that Elohim City it was run by an FBI guy that got Timothy LeBay, uh, LeBay, um, McVeigh, McVeigh. McVeigh to plan this stuff. So over and over again, we find these supposed events that we're told to be to be you know scared of, and that our government has to have these draconian things about mm-hmm. Patriot Act were actually initiated by government officials mm-hmm. to, to to do it to actually provoke people to actually take the action itself. Well, you know, and that his- is evil. Well, you know, and historically, we can go back and look at some of the events of just this century and see that that's how governments work. You know, uh, uh, with the bombing of uh, bombing of. Uh, um, you know, the Berlin yeah. building there, uh, the Menshevik, Bolshevik takeover, mm-hmm. right? Uh, uh, the Red right. China thing where right. uh, Chiang Kai-shek had his enemy surrounded. And well, if I could say one thing real quick for people to think about, yep. with all this thing going on with the um, uh, town hall meetings, mm-hmm. and if you see violence, they've just had these reports on right-wing extremism, if you see bad stuff happen, don't be shocked if it's government people. That are triggering that government guys on the payroll mm-hmm. are causing it. Right when that report came out from DHS, we had a shooting uh, at a, a Holocaust museum. Mm-hmm. We had a shooting of an abortion doctor. These other things the same week. We hadn't heard anything forever. Mm-hmm. And right on the advent of the release of that report, those things came out. I can't think that's a coincidence. And yeah, you be very to. careful what these guys are doing. Look at the track record of history. I didn't mean to interrupt you, it's but okay, we're uh, on the same page. We got to go to Merv. Merv, would you tell our listeners how to contact us at Future Quake? Future Quake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. 
that's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E, at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the show's topics or guests, or suggestions for future show topics or guests, are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. Okay. I, I, I blabbed our time. No, that's cool. Thank, you got, got good stuff out of there. Let's think this was important. Yeah. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, we got to go. Uh, until next week, we hope your future is very bright. Have a good day. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. quake, quake, quake.